Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brand. And this episode, thankfully, we followed all of our safety protocols and we have had 448 deathless days <laughs> because it is our first full length by Steve Fisk. We've had Steve Fisk on the show on the No Age Comp, just one song, but now we've got a full length by Steve, which is awesome. It's just awesome to get into it. Um, back to back with Pell Mell, especially. And Brent, we've got a special guest. Yeah, Steve Fisk is on the show. Yeah, it's great to have Steve on for sure because there is so much to get into um, given the way in which these songs are composed. It's a great interview. It's probably one of our longer ones, but hang in there because there is a ton of super cool stuff that uh, Brent and Steve get into in particular. And I might add, uh, Steve gives a great spiel in the last like two minutes of the interview that it, it really encapsulates why we started this show to begin with. For it, sure. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Steve, Steve really compares SST to a Bauhaus, which I thought was like, yup. Um, and get your pen out too. Like the Pell-Mell episode, there's some stuff you're going to want to check out. I think. Yeah, there's some serious name dropping, hey, and and uh, yeah. stuff to dig into for sure. And all you gearheads, you're going to go ultra geeked on this one. Yeah, for sure. So I think, Brent, what we said last episode is we're now going to do our SS Tree Roundup for 2020. We did our top tens last episode. Now we're going to rattle off all the stuff that the SST alumni were doing in 2020. Is that right? We're going to try. We're not going to get it all. So please let us know what we missed. Yeah, totally. But again, get your pens out because there's some great stuff here. That's right. Your cockatoo quill, yep. dip it, inkwell, go. Uh, how do we want to do this though? We're not going to go back and forth, are we? Do you no. want to just go first and all back cleanup? Okay. 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 You ready? So ready. Okay. Henry, <laughs> and this is in no particular <laughs> order too. It's all over the place. Yeah. Henry Kaiser, along with a Norwegian guitarist named Ivar Gridland released a soundtrack for a documentary film on the Rune Gramophone label called In the Arctic Dreamtime. Henry did another duo recording with percussionist Andrea or Andrea Gantazzo, uh, who he first collaborated with over 40 years ago on the album Protocol. These are new recordings called Beyond Protocol. There's also uh, a two-disc release called Above Protocol with unreleased recordings from the original 1978 sessions. There's also a solo guitar-free improv recording released on the Fractal label called Problems Are Only Opportunities in Work Clothes, Henry Kaiser Solo Guitar 2020. There's another free improv project called The Dukes of Bedford with John Russell and Ole Bryce and Ray Russell, and also the new Scott Colby track he performs on, which you can find on his weekly solo on the Cuneiform Records YouTube channel. That's really cool. Uh, Henry also plays on the new album from the great New York avant-garde guitarist and musician Nick Didkowski, a.k.a. Dr. Nerve. The album is called Loud, and it also features Matt Hollenberg on a track and Mike Keneally on a track. And I'm sure there's probably more Henry Kaiser stuff, probably 10 times that. Uh, yeah. But that's what I found. That's still a healthy amount of Kaiser for 2020. Yep. Uh, another super prolific guy, Elliot Sharp, has an album called Foliage, 
which is an avant-garde jazz and classical score he composed and conducted with a bunch of players. Uh, another one is Asosceles, a solo show recorded during uh, an online stream. Elliot Sharp's Bandcamp has 20-plus new releases on it. Some haven't been available in years. Some are wow. brand-new releases of older material he found on old DAT tapes during quarantine. And that's, you know, that's a theme this year. That's one of the good things. I think I said this last week to come out of quarantine is so many people dug out some archival stuff. Fred Frith, a record called Barbecue with Fred Frith. Postmodernism free improv recordings from 1982. Also, a jazz album with Nicholas Humbert and Mark Parasoto called Cut Up the Border. Speaking of prolific Bandcamp pages, Sonic Youth's Bandcamp also exploded this year. Dozens of high-quality live recordings spanning their entire career. Uh, the self-titled EP, Through to Daydream Nation, are on there. The Whitey album, three excellent rarities comps. I'd recommend Live in Denver, 1986, Live in Yugoslavia, 85 and 87. Uh, for a good live snapshot of the SST era. Greg Siegel of Paper Bag has also been quite prolific on his band camp. A new solo album called These Things Don't Exist Anymore. Some re-releases of older material, including the Paper Bag Victimless Crime cassette-only release from 85, and a Kenny Ryman solo album that he completed before he passed away. There's a new Negative Land album, The World Will Decide. Steve Fisk is also on it. Uh, its themes seem to revolve a lot around technology. Definitely challenges your thinking. It's super great, and we definitely need negative land right now. Some Descendants-related stuff. Uh, the Locomotive album that went up on Matt Crane's Bandcamp page I mentioned a while back, which features Jovi Butts and Ray Cooper. That's a really cool listen. Uh, there's Milo's Rebuke 45 clever title not an lp these are anti-trump songs milo wrote and performed on ukulele including a song called royal flush which is a mashup of anarchy in the uk with milo as rotten james dio and he's <laughs> he's doing like a dio impression going like danger look out <laughs> it's pretty great two of the tracks uh, on you and hindsight 2020 are also the A and B side of the new Descendants single, Suffrage. Stefan released his second instrumental EP as Slaughter, entitled 2, and there's also a track by Quarantines called Where's My Shirt, a benefit for Stefan's daughter's Sophie's favorite band, The Pairs. She plays bass on it, Stefan plays drums, and Milo uh, sings. Stefan's on guitar as well on that one. Uh, also former Descendant Doug Carrion's awesome new project, Field Day, has a new four-song EP called Opposite Land, and it's super great. That is, of course, he and ex-Dag Nasty vocalist Peter Kortner. Jason Kahn, drummer extraordinaire, has a 12-string acoustic lap slide album called Old and New Ghosts, and another album that sounds more like ambient soundscapes mixed with field recordings called Infinity Suite. Here's one you mentioned way back, Ryan, that I haven't been able to track down yet, but I really want to hear this. It's the Vicious Fence single. I think there's actually two of them. There are two of them, yep. Yeah. Uh, it's a couple dudes from Watts Band, John Talley Jones of the Urinals, etc., and Mark Arm. The SST tie-in is Tom Watson. Yes. Not just of Watts Band, but slovenly, among others. The Freaked original soundtrack finally got a proper release on Death Waltz. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know Brad's going to mention Freaked. Oh yeah, if you haven't seen this movie, you need to track it down. The title track features Rollins with Blind Idiot God, plus three more Blind Idiot God tracks, Butthole Surfers, Iggy Pop, it's great. Another comp, the Spike comp on Water Under the Bridge, is a Pedro comp with artwork by Raymond Pettibone that has a new track by Mike Watt and the Missing Men, and also Georgie's band, The Wrinkling Brothers. Paul Rossler is always posting interesting new tracks to his SoundCloud. Uh, he has a thing with his sister Kira called The Ghosts. And Paul this year also started a Bandcamp page and put up a bunch of stuff, including his SST solo album. But it's his prog epic, The Ark, that you re really should go and check out. Joe Biza has a free jazz album with Corey Fogel and Patrick Shirioshi, a sax player who was in a ton of bands. But the one that I know is Upsilon Acrux, if I'm pronouncing that right, who have albums on Devin Sarno's Win Records. The album is called The Hound, The Frog, and the Hare, featuring cover art by Biza. You can check it out on Patrick's Bandcamp page. That's Patrick Shirioshi. Jim Thompson, who played drums in Alternatives, plays drums in a DC band called Time is Fire. Check out their EP on Electric Cowbell Records Bandcamp. It's very percussive, Gang of Four-esque post-punk. Produced and engineered, Ryan, by Brendan Canty. It's really cool. Ooh. Time is Fire, that's the band. Clifford Dinsmore of Blast has a totally kick-ass hardcore band uh, and a record with members of Fast Asleep, Good Riddance, and the Distillers. It's called Seized Up. The album's called Brace Yourself really uh, apt album title for the record because you kind of have to brace yourself for that one. It's pretty intense. <laughs> one of my favorites, Ryan, the Record Store Day Meat Puppets 10-inch on Megaforce. It just rules. Uh, I love the five-piece version of the band. Hopefully a full length is coming this year. Uh, late 90s Obsessed Rarities Comp Incarnate was reissued with extra tracks. Of course, uh, the Obsessed was the band Wino fronted before and after Vitus, but Scott Reeder was also in the band for a spell. Uh, and his SST connection is the awesome Dark Side song Rights Right on the Desperate Teenage Love Dolls soundtrack. Yes. Wino himself has a great new solo acoustic album called Forever Gone. Couldn't be more excited, Ryan, to be getting to the final Vitus album for SST, Mournful Cries, in a few weeks. Yawning Man, the Desert Rockers with crazy SS tree branches in... Uh, Gary R.C., Mario Lolly, and Bill Stinson have a new live album, Live at Giant Rock. I have a thing, Ryan, for clever song titles, and there's one on here called Nazi Synthesizer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's too good. Yeah. Also, these same dudes, along with some others, have a psychedelic rock band called Big Scenic Nowhere, and they have an album out called Vision Beyond Horizon. It's their debut full-length, and both it and the Yawning Man album are on the Italian label Heavy Psych Sounds. Uh, there's this psychedelic bluegrass band called Water Tower. I believe they're from Portland. They have a track out called Anthem, co-produced by Ariel Pink, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> I'm just reading this now. I wrote this long before he uh, outed himself as a mega dipshit. Uh, Don Bowles uh, also produced it. And the vocalist is none other than Ron Reyes. They have a cool animated video you can find on YouTube. TSOL released a digital-only cover of the Rocky Horror Picture Show song 
Sweet Transvestite with guest vocalist Keith Morris. Ryan, another interesting artist that I can't wait to dive into this spring, reggae legend Ross Michael has a new album out called Live by the Spirit. Yeah. Another great band camp to check out is the Treacherous Jaywalkers. They've added more amazing live stuff this year and one of the most exciting archival releases of 2020, their debut cassette-only studio album from 86, Earth, went up on the band camp. Go get that now. Also, Josh Hayden's band Spain released a new track called Love Will Come to Town. Uh, The other archival release I could not get enough of this past month is the newly released Divine Horseman Live 85 to 87. Two amazing shows, Safari Sam's in Huntington Beach and The Rat in Boston. 17 tracks total, amazing sound quality, totally essential. Limited edition CD version on Feeding Tube Records. Also check out on their Bandcamp while you're there, The Mystery Writers and... Mind Fever Soulfire tracks, the two singles from their forthcoming comeback album, Hot Rise of an Ice Cream Phoenix, which is due out this spring on In the Red Records. The Wild Rats Bandcamp page. Uh, Wild Rats were formed in 1997 to record tracks for the film Velvet Goldmine. A Bandcamp page went up this year with a total treasure trove of recordings. It's of course Ron Ashton of the Stooges, Jim Dunbar, Mark Arm, Don Fleming, and then Thurston Moore, Mike Watt, and Steve Shelley. Definitely check that page out. Also, Steve's label Vampire Blues Bandcamp. There's a bunch of great stuff there, including a killer unreleased record Steve did with the band The Disappears. And the Overpass record Manhattan Beach uh, is up on that bandcamp. That's the post-slovenly band. Jesse Mallon, formerly of the great band Degeneration, uh, who also has a lengthy solo career, he has a new single on Little Steven's Wicked Cool label. And there's a song on there called Todd Youth, with which features vocals by the one and only HR. And of course, speaking of HR, Ryan, Bad Brains uh, have their own label now, Bad Brains Records. There's a website, badbrainsrecords.com, uh, in conjunction with ORG Records. Extensive reissue campaign coming. ORG also released one of my favorite SST related records of the year, the super limited Worm comeback single, Poison Zero Sum. Uh, It's of course the surviving members of the original Worm, Loud Lou, Hinzo, and Chuck Dukowski, along with SST alum Philo, and a perfect stand-in for Simon Smallwood, German Gonzalez, cover art by Chuck Dukowski. It's super awesome, really hoping to hear some new Worm in 2021. Thurston Moore also released a new studio album this year called By the Fire, and he also played on a free improv album with a bunch of other players called Stove Lit Lines. And finally for me, Ryan, and you're going to hear about all of this in the upcoming interview, Steve Fisk. He performed on a series called Wayward in Limbo. His is number 81. You can hear it on the Wayward Music Series SoundCloud page over at waywardmusic.org. Also performing on the track is Richard Denner, who we'll be seeing on the 448 Deathless Days album. Dennis Ray, Giant Steps. Uh, you'll hear more about this right away in the interview. Definitely need to check that out. It's on his Bandcamp page. You can just Google Dennis Ray, R-E-A, or Moon June, which is his label. Uh, it's really cool. He's an awesome guitar player. There's lots of good stuff on there. And there's a free ebook download detailing each of the track's origins. 
He has a cool band, Dennis Ray, called Moraine, Ryan, that you should check out on that Bandcamp page. It's really cool. Jazz rock. And then he also mentions this in the interview. He has a new single out on their Bandcamp with his duo called The Grumps, called Bang Bang. That's really cool. Steve was a busy guy in 2020. No kidding. That's what I found, Ryan. What did you find? I'll try and go rapid fire here. Some of these we also mentioned last week too, like the Don't Sleep, Turn the Tide LP. Uh, We also last year mentioned that on Record Store Day, Dinosaur Jr. had a live LP come out on Cherry Red, the Swedish Fist release. Mascus was also a guest on the Kestrels album, Dream or Don't Dream. That's uh, the Canadian band Kestrels. Uh, Lou Barlow, the Joyful Noise Artist Enabler Club, which I subscribe to. I received in the mail from Lou well over 100 tracks that I had never heard before on a bunch of cassettes, singles, and LPs. That's Lou Barlow for you, man. Just keeps cranking them out. Um, The Last, the Look Again LP. Wicked. Uh, Bob Mould, the Blue Hearts LP, which was in my top 10 last week. The Bob Mould Distortion Box, which we talked about in the reissue segment last week. Also from Bob Mould, though, the Circle of Friends double live LP came out. 100 Flowers, their Drawing Fire 12-inch came out. I mentioned that last week as well in the reissue segment. Mark Lanigan, he put out a record called Straight Songs of Sorrow, a Christmas uh, record, Dark Mark Does Christmas. Mark also guested on the excellent Hey Colossus record, Dances and Curses. Uh, That was in my honorable mentions last week. Petrified Max, a new band, Charlie Drove North is the record, uh, featuring Vetus Matari on Poison Summer Records. That's a cool record. Uh, Vetus also re-released the Son of Warfrat Tales comp, mentioned that last week, on uh, Warfrat Gramophone. Gary Lee Connor had the Revelations in Fuzz LP, as well as the Opposite of Christmas LP. I already spoke about Mascus, and we mentioned this last week too. He uh, also put out the Fed Up and Feeling Strange triple live solo CD set. The Royal Arctic Institute, we mentioned this on the show last year, released a track, 13 Christmases at Sea. That's Lyle Heisen, of course. The Tripwires, that's a band with Mark Pickerel from The Trees, put out a, uh, a release called Play Five Explosive Hits. During the re-release segment last week as well, we also spoke about how Trotsky Ice Pick has re-released the Poison Summer LP, and there's some more Trotsky Ice Pick re-releases to come this year. Also, I can't tell exactly what day this one came out. I, it might have been in 2021, but Mike Watt and the Black Gang released a track, the Bikini Kill track, Rebel Girl, to mm. uh, for a Kill Rock Stars anniversary, Bikini Kill anniversary. And uh, I think it was around the uh, inauguration a couple of weeks ago, but The Descendants released a new track. So it's probably technically in 2021, but a new track called That's the Breaks. Yep. New track by Descendants. And then, Brant, I've also got a ton of Mike Watt releases to go through. What's up, man? Okay, so I got to talk to you about that real quick here. <laughs> I know you like to call a Mike Watt release segment what's up but i just can't do it I really anymore do. i really I got do. i gotta rebrand it so 
I got to try this on for you. Uh, you know that Abbott and Costello routine? Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know who's on third. Shortstop mm-hmm. is out. You know that one? Yeah. I want to call this. Well, the thing is, is like if we keep calling this what's up, it's always going to remind me of a gross Budweiser commercial, and I just can't do it. I can't. Oh, that. Oh, I didn't even think of that. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Dude, that's what everyone is thinking when you say that. Nobody's so, thinking that. Everyone's thinking that. So I want to call it what's on base. You know, who's on second, what's okay. on base. I like that better. I'm not going to remember that, though, so you have, you'll have to remember that. That's fine. Because guess what, Brant? What? What's on base, all of these next releases. <laughs> all right, so there was the... Larry Mullins and Mike Watt, 7-inch, Tribute to the Stooges, their second one. This is on Org Music. Uh, Watt actually was not on bass on this one. The Ivan, the Tolerable, and his Elastic Band Out of Season LP. Watt uh, basically does spoken word on it. It's pretty cool. There was the Organs and Mike Watt CD that came out. The Sock Tight Smudge LP on Org Music for Record Store Day. That's Mike Watt and Raymond Pettibone. Uh, you mentioned the Wild Rats. That's a Watt release. The MSSV or Main Steam Stop Valve LP on Big Ego Records. Main Steam Stop Valve also put out a 7-inch on Improved Sequence called Media Kittens. Uh, Watt and the Black Gang put out a 7-inch called My Head Is My Only House on Nomad Eel Records. Uh, also with Henry Kaiser, also on Cuneiform, Watt did the double CD, which is just excellent, A Love Supreme Electric. Yes, it's great. Excellent, excellent. Watt and Kaiser together at last. Yeah, I loved it. Doing Coltrane. Yeah, I loved man, it. Man, oh man. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was so good. It is, it is good. Yeah. And then finally, I think this is my... If I'm keeping track, I think this is Watt's 10th release last year. He also did vocals on a, uh, a Red Mass collective LP called A Hopeless Noise. That's out on Mothland Records. Red Mass is really uh, Roy Vucino and Hannah Lewis who write all the tracks. And then uh, this last album, anyways, they got a bunch of different people to do guest vocals like Watt. Uh, Rick Froberg is also guesting on it. John Kastner guests on a vocal. Oh. Evan Dando guests on. It's a cool record. And that's it, man. Watts on bass on all of those, except for one, the Ivan the Tolerable. Right. Right on, man. Yeah, that Love Supreme's awesome. No doubt. And now, Brent, I was thinking back to last week, and I've actually, I've got a bit of a backlog of spiels, Okay. Okay. And and so we'll start on them next week, but I've got like a major spiel log. Can I can I call a backlog of spiels a spiel log? Sure. And then we'll clear the log jam cuz we're Canadian. We're going to start that. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to start but here I got I got to give you a couple of quick non SS tree 2020 wind up spiels. These are micro spiels, okay? Yep. My first spiel is a quick zombie update. Z O B-M-I. Ah, and okay. You can do that. Okay. Zombie update. So I check. I checked out a bunch of the stuff from last week over this past week. And zombie really caught my attention because that's like a, they sound like a 1980s futuristic movie soundtrack with like metal. Is that, is that fair? Is yeah. Power metal? 
I wouldn't say with metal, but like, there's what a, would you say that? Well, is? there's definite prog, a lot of prog going on. Yeah, there. maybe more prog. Yeah. The th- the problem I have with zombie is I can't tell if I like it. I think I think I do, but right. I can't tell. Like, keep listening. Shapeshift, the album that came out, I don't know, maybe 2017 ish, 2018 ish. Do that one. That one's There's awesome. That one's excellent. Okay, Shapeshift. It kind of reminds me of, and you go way deeper into this type of music, but it kind of reminded me of a way more proggy keyboards version of shooting guns almost. Does that make sense? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I, I, I had like a major zombie issue this week. I can't tell if I like it. So I got it. I'll check out another one. Okay. Keep checking. And finally, my first recommend of the year for you. I missed it in honorable mentions last week. It's a 2020 release. I should have mentioned it. But last week I saw a bunch of people posting about it and I was like, oh yeah, I know that record. I haven't told Brent about it. And maybe the people want to hear about it. It's a band called Noso, K-N-O-W-S-O. They're from Cleveland. And last year they put out a record called Specialtronics Green Vision. It's kind of like Devo, Minutemen, No Means No. Really? Yeah, you got to check that out. That's a solid recommend. No so. Do it. Okay. Will do. Okay, man. We're starting to uh, clear the Spielog jam. <laughs> How about that reissue by the last, though? Hey, did you hear it yet? Have you gotten yours? Oh, yeah, man. Bonus 7-inch. It's awesome. It took, eh? it took almost all of 2020 to get to me in the mail, though. Yeah. Isn't it great, though? Oh, it's cool. I love it. I love it, man. Should we get into this Steve Fisk record? Yeah, man. History Lesson, Part 1. All right, Brent, the interview is awesome coming up with Steve. Like I said, um, everyone is going to really enjoy it. And uh, we've had a lot of references to Steve, actually, on the podcast before, and especially last week on the Pell-Mell episode. What should we do to uh, lay some track for the interview here? Okay, well, I have a little history lesson, and this is far from complete. He's had two amazing careers one as an engineer producer and one as a musician so please uh bear with me here when i when i spiel this out to you because it's far from complete but here's what i came up with steve fisk is a washington-based audio engineer record producer and musician he has long been associated with the pacific northwest music scenes and as i said ryan i'll give a brief overview here of his parallel career as an engineer producer but Uh, We also touch on it in the interview. Our focus in this episode is going to be on his his own music, though. His first notable musical project was the group Anonymous, which was formed when he was attending Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington in the late 70s and early 80s. The band is a trio with Steve, Jim Stone Cipher, and Paul Tyson. They released a single in 1980 with the songs Snake Attack and Corporate Food. The A-side, The Amazing Corporate Food, ends up on the classic 1981 alternative tentacles comp, Let Them Eat Jelly Beans. I also found a comp Ryan called Collaborations, which looks like it came out of Evergreen uh, and it has a Steve Steve Fisk track on it. Anonymous morphs into Customer Service, which is Steve along with Steve Peters. They released a few tracks on some regional cassette comps and, as you'll hear in the interview, uh, played some pretty big shows. 
They morph again, this time into a group called Professional Ethics, which is Steve Fisk, Steve Peters, and future Sub Pop founder Bruce Pavitt. Ah, uh-huh. yeah, there's uh, that book I mentioned last week, Sub Pop USA, that came out on Bazillion Points. Uh, Pell-Mell and Steve Fisk are all over that book. Yeah, I bet. Uh, Professional ethics add Paul Tyson back from Anonymous and Philip Hertz of prog band Conch, who wrote the track Corporate Food uh, that I mentioned earlier. This expanded five-piece lineup becomes the group Tiny Holes, and you can hear them on a 1981 live recording called City of Siege Olympia which came out on K Records a few years back. All of these groups he's associated with, including the Beakers, John Foster's Pop Philosophers, play shows together and release some singles and comps on short-lived label Mr. Brown Records and Tapes. Also, Bruce Pavitt has started his sub-pop zine and comp tape series by this point, which Steve pops up on. Around 1982, he joins Pell-Mell, who we covered last week. And he also starts releasing full-length recordings under his own name. These are cassette-only releases of sample-heavy art rock, very similar to what you'll hear on this 448 Deathless Days album. The first is 1983's Kiss This Day Goodbye, and the second is 1986's Till the Night Closes In. Uh, Both, with many of the same collaborators, we'll see on this record. K Records released a CD comp called Over and Through the Night, which is just awesome. Came out in 1993, has songs off of these releases, and it's it's truly great. In 1987, he signs to SST for the album we're talking about today. Uh, by this point, he's really becoming sought after as a producer-engineer, working with groups like The Screaming Trees, Beat Happening, and Soundgarden. In 1988, he releases another sample-heavy cassette-only release on K Records called One Valley More. By 1990, he's living in Seattle and heavily involved with Sub Pop. He's practically like their in-house producer, working with Nirvana, Love Battery, Afghan Wigs, Unwound, Seaweed, and many, many more. He forms the ambient soul duo Pigeonhead with vocalist Sean Smith in 1993, and they release a few albums on Sub Pop. Uh, also, Pell-Mell reforms around this time, and they release Interstate on DGC. He's also a member of mid-90s indie rock supergroup The Halo Benders, featuring Steve, along with Calvin Johnson of Beat Happening and a zillion other bands, Doug Marsh of Built to Spill, uh, and Ralph Utes and Wayne Flower, releasing three albums on K Records between 1994 and 1998. He's also producing many albums for DGC uh, with groups like The Posies and Boss Hog. In 2001, he releases another record built around sampling called 900 and 999 Levels of Undo. He's gone on to work with a zillion other bands, some of which you'll hear about in the interview. He currently resides in Tacoma, Washington, where he continues to create in his home studio and also at a local studio, Uptown Recorders. So I hope between that and the interview, we kind of do Steve justice. I know that's a very quick over, overview of an amazing career that's still going strong, and I probably missed some important stuff in there, but that's that's what I came up with. 
One thing I would add on the production side that I really like, I really like his work with Some Velvet Sidewalk. Okay. That that record, Avalanche, is uh, just killer. So is Whirlpool. And uh, also with The Wedding Present, the Watusi and Take Fountain records, those are great. Uh, that self-titled Boss Hog that you mentioned is great. The Unwound records, of course. There's tons and tons and tons. The other thing that I really like that Steve did was the score for the documentary about Kurt Cobain, about a son. Yeah. The score there is really, it's actually by a, by a long shot, the best Nirvana slash Kurt Cobain documentary out there because it's all just from Kurt. Okay. Um, and the music is perfect. The, the music that Steve composed is great for the mood of the film. Um, and then there's also a lot of, actual like recordings by bands on the soundtrack um, that Kurt mentions during the the documentary. But that's a great documentary, great score by Steve. I've never seen it. I'll have to tee that one up. Yeah, it's good. It's um, it's basically like there's no there's no video interviews of Kurt. It's all audio. I'm pretty sure I haven't checked this. I'm pretty sure it's him giving an interview with Michael Azarad. I think most of it is. Mm -hmm. And then it's all spliced together to basically tell his life story, the story of Nirvana. It's it's really interesting. It really gives a probably the most intimate and human portrait of Kurt for my money. Anyways, I haven't seen or read everything, but it's the one I like the best for sure. Should we throw it over to Steve? Let's do that. All right. We're joined on the podcast today by Steve Fisk. Steve, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. I'm wondering, Steve, if you can take me back where did you grow up? I grew up in a suburb of Southern California called Lakewood. Okay. And while there are many Lakewoods across America, this one's worth noting that it was um, a planned housing community. You know, it was to help people get out of the city and into the suburbs. So uh, it was cheap tract housing uh, with, uh, loans available for uh, people coming out of the service. My dad was just coming out of World War II, got a GI Bill to go to USC, which a guy like him would never get. USC is very expensive. And then after that, uh, he got a deal on a house in Lakewood. What were you like as a kid? Did you get into music really early on? What were your interests? Well, uh, my parents were very supportive of my musical uh, career. <laughs> or whatever it was at age four. Right. And and both my brother and I, uh, you know, got to play instruments growing up and took lessons. And I got to be a half-ass kid clarinet player and a half-ass kid cello player. And, you know, uh, and, and I wanted to be in a band because I like, you know, music on the radio. And, and especially, I guess this sounds sinister, but... Um, Watching the Beatles happen gave me this idea that kids were going to take over the world <laughs> or that kids had tremendous unrealized power. And I got to see that as a very young kid when the Beatles first started. And then as we moved through the 60s, I got to see how the Beatles music made everybody change how they made music. Uh, the Beatles haircuts made everybody change how they wore their hair. The Beatles clothes you know everybody in my church started wearing Nehru jackets and right. you know and and so um i i saw 
I saw the power in that. <laughs> as a young man, as a young child. So, um, so yeah, being in a band, being in a band was a thing, you know, up to a certain age. And then I realized that really wasn't going to happen. And did you, uh, did you play that, in a band in high school? Do you know the band Dawkin? Yeah. D-O-K-A with the two periods over there. Yeah. You, you know, they have a guitar player named George Lynch. Yep. Yeah, I played in a high school band with George Lynch. Oh, wow. What and, what uh, instrument did you play? Oh, I've always been a keyboard player. Okay. So um, I was trying to play in a burgeoning wannabe pre-metal band with George Lynch with what somebody would say today would be the perfect 60s keyboard rig, which was um, a small, solid-state um, Italian organ, but it, it didn't exactly fit the, uh, the bill. So I didn't last long in that band, but I learned quite a bit. And uh, and to this day, George Lynch won't talk to me. I've reached out to him many times on the mm. internet. <laughs> so you, did, you didn't have I, a proper I, Keith Emerson setup to. <laughs> well, to... yeah. I'm mad. Whose dad wants to haul that crap around? <laughs> you know, because I was 14, 15. I couldn't drive. You know, a Hammond and a Leslie won't fit in a station wagon. <laughs> you know, let alone the roads and the other affiliate keyboards that go with all that. Okay, so at some point you obviously moved away. Where did you where did where and when did you move? After high school? When I graduated high school, I thought I was moving forever up to Ellensburg, Washington, where I had friends from Los Angeles that had split and started um I guess we'd call it slacking. They didn't have a word for it then, but they were sort of proto slackers in this very, very small town in the middle of Washington state. And I lasted about two weeks cause I was still a Los Angelino right. and uh, didn't stay there long and went back to California and worked some jobs and uh, went to a junior college and eventually moved back to Ellensburg. I think when I was 22, okay. a few years later, and stayed, stayed for four years. Okay. Now, is it there that you start the group Anonymous? No. Uh, that was in Olympia. After four years in Ellensburg, I moved to Olympia and uh, finished my education at the Evergreen State College and had an independent record label with some friends, and Anonymous kind of happened in the middle of all that. Okay. Just because it's important, I mentioned this in other interviews as well, but uh, what Olympia is famous for yep. was actually going on when I was there, like in you know, 1980, 81, 82. It was um, uh, a hotbed of independent culture and independent music, and our local radio station was a big part of it, and we had records from all over the world, independent records from all over the world at the radio station. So whether anybody liked it or not, Olympia was a music town because the radio station wanted to, you know, um, do their mission statement, which was to turn people on to interesting alternative music that they might not ordinarily hear. So I went to, to Evergreen thinking I was going to study music and I studied music. But once I actually got to the school, I ended up working at the radio station, and after I started working at the radio station, I got a show, 
And after I got a show, I learned about Op Magazine, which the shorthand is it's the Whole Earth Music Catalog of Independent Music mm-hmm. of its day. You can talk about Op Magazine and take, it could take up a whole, whole hour. <laughs> it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. It ran 26 issues. There was one for every letter of the alphabet. And they reviewed music, uh, independent music, regardless of genre. Okay. And so if you put out an independent record in 1979, 1980, and had how many promotional copies back then? 25 copies, 50 copies if you're doing your own label. Right. 50 copies was a lot. Point was, you always sent one to Chaos, and you always sent one to Op, because Op would review it, and Chaos would play it. Hmm. Chaos is the station um, in Olympia. Sorry to get ahead of myself there. K-A-O-S, right. 89.3, Olympia, Washington. It's still on the dial. Wow. Tell me about some of the stuff that was happening around there at that time. I mean, you obviously, we hear about the stuff that came later out of Olympia, but what about some of these bands, like, were Three Swimmers and the the Beakers? Were they Olympia bands? They had Olympia pedigree. They were technically Seattle bands. Okay. At that point, but uh, the Beakers were first. They broke up, and the Three Swimmers came out of that. They considering they were small and kind of a strange, wonderful, funky band, but really, really loose, and lots of um, entry-level players playing instruments that they weren't that uh, well acquainted with. They they befriended Gang of Four. They opened for Gang of Four and became uh, tour mates of Gang of Four. So when Gang of Four would do the tour down the West Coast, they would take the Beakers with them. Oh, wow. And later they took the Three Swimmers, which at the time was the big deal. By 2021, it's a really big deal. Yeah. (laughs) I had a band that uh, was a live electronic band with, you know, a tape deck on stage and a bunch of synthesizers. And uh, we got to play some pretty big shows back then too. One show we actually got to open for the Beakers, opening for the Gang of Four. Oh, wow. Yeah. What was How that? about that? What band was that? That was Customer Service. Okay. Which was me and Steven Peters, who now runs a performance series in Seattle, Washington. Um, and it used to be in Arizona and now it's up here but Steve Peters has done some pretty amazing stuff on his own he's a new music composer Hmm. and also um, curates a lot of interesting uh, new music live stuff and then uh, right now there's actually uh, because the Chapel Performance Center is closed because of COVID they're releasing things online so I actually if you if you're interested there's some Steve Fisk music that uh, no one's ever heard that just came out through a chapel performance series that's all being administered by my old friend Steve Peters. Oh, wow. And yes, motherfuckers, that's a patriarchy in action. <laughs> right on. Yeah, I... We are good I, old boys. <laughs> <laughs> that's up on his band camp. I did stumble across that, actually. I yeah, think. and I was making music like that back then as well as the kind of loony stuff I did in Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Under my own name, but um, okay, I haven't really done an awful lot of that in my life, so I really appreciate the chance to do it from time to time. Yep. Anyway, Anonymous took off as a radio thing. It got played quite a bit, and customer service became the live band that came out of Anonymous, so we could you know play that one stupid song live and then <laughs> uh, some other stuff we wrote. Right on. Now, how did you end up on the Let Them Eat Jelly Beans comp? Did Jello hear the single? 
Jello heard the single. Jello heard corporate food and really liked the humor and the sentiment of corporate food and wanted that on the Let Them Eat Jelly Beans compilation. Okay. And it's worth noting that actually was a progressive rock band that was um, just about falling apart at that point. Conch. And Conch. Oh, what? you've done your homework. <laughs> what did they sound like? Like, compare them to another they prog band. They were very uninviting for being a prog band. <laughs> they were doing very heady stuff. I would compare them as Henry Cow. Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of odd time signatures. Uh you know, maybe like some of the Stranger King Crimson stuff. They mm. did have a angelic, blonde-haired lead singer that would do these mellow sections playing a harmonium and all of that. But um, Wearing a kimono, um, hopefully. Uh, God, did he have a kimono? <laughs> they, they had a look. They had two homemade guitars that sounded amazing, and one was a bird, and the other was the axe that was destroyed, was going to kill the bird. They had a whole mythology, like some proper... English folk prog band or something like that. And Sounds they amazing. They were very well. <laughs> they were good. They they would kind of give you a headache live just because it was so complicated and relentless. They they weren't engaging performers. They didn't pull you in. They just performed their music very well. Right. And they played once a year, twice a year. So hmm. they probably if they would have played more, uh, would have helped them to a certain extent. But contour were great and I was very impressed by Conch and I um, you know got invited into their world they were very welcoming and they were happy to have this keyboard geek with all of these synthesizers and shit to play with uh, <laughs> and I made some good friends some of them are dead some of them are still with me you know mm-hmm. uh, so that's Conch okay so at this point are you thinking you want to be a musician do you want to get into producing and engineering or has that thought even occurred to you yet or were you doing it by this point? Well, here's the thing. Um, if you put out your own record in a proper cargo cult way, you're emulating something you don't understand. Right. (laughs) So every record has an engineer, every record has a producer. So the people that laid out the graphics, for some of these early records started calling me a producer because they said that's what I was doing, even though I had no idea that that's what I was doing. Right. I probably was more of a facilitator engineer than a, you know, somebody that wanted to be a producer or something. Although I was a giant fan of Brian Eno Mm -hmm. and Brian Eno got to have solo records and be a producer. And, uh, and also got to say fancy things at cocktail parties. So, you know, it seemed seemed like, yeah, okay, I can see myself getting older and balder and uh, being more of a, a studio rat and less of somebody that plays in a band. That And that being said, I joined Pell-Mell right after I got through with Olympia, so I did have one last big commitment to being in a, a live band that would tour and try to do all that shit. But no, I, I, um, I you know, I'm, I'm a narcissist, you know. I, I saw myself getting older and growing into what I'm doing now when I was 28. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about Pell-Mell. So you joined when you were still in Olympia, and then you moved to Berkeley, or you joined in Berkeley? Here's the name drop. Uh, some people still remember who Bruce Pavitt is. Do you know who <laughs> Bruce Pavitt is? Of course. 
Okay, I figured you would. <laughs> uh, to the, our listeners who don't know Bruce Pabbitt is Bruce Pabbitt started Sub Pop. Sub Pop started as a record label, technically, mm-hmm. in 1988 or 87 or something like that. But before that, it was a cassette compilation. And just like Let Them Eat Jelly Beans, uh, it was a sampler of American bands that people needed to hear, independent bands, a lot of them from second cities, smaller cities. Super and eclectic he managed to Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can find them on YouTube, Sub Pop uh, 5, Sub Pop 7, and Sub Pop 9. Oh. Uh, because it was like a magazine. It wasn't like a magazine. I'm sorry, it sounded like Donald Trump. It was like a magazine. Uh, no, it, it it was a magazine that was print alternating with a cassette comp. Right. And those went all over the world. I mean, the first one was kind of particularly blew people away. And there was, you know, uh, I think, you know, they were all done on homemade cassette machines. But I think there might have been 2,000 of them or something like that, which wow. in 1980, 81, whenever that that's unheard of. No kidding. And people paid money for it, and so you know there was a second and uh, and a third, and many of the people on the cassettes. You can go do your own homework, but there are people that went on to be you know movers and shakers mm-hmm. and players and independent rock uh, and other genres. So anyway, Bruce was the guy that was championing Pell-Mell's everybody in Olympia. He'd been to Portland, he'd met them, and uh, we were all the biggest Pell-Mell fans in the world. Me and all my Dear friends, we loved that Rhyming Guitars record, loved it to death. Bruce uh, invited me to mix a Pell-Mell live performance, which is, um, it was a live cassette. That's what it's called. It was a live cassette. It's a CD. It's online. You can get that. It's Pell-Mell playing a poorly recorded show in uh, some art gallery in Portland. Anyway, I mixed that. Uh, I met Pell-Mell for the second time, and... We talked about working together because actually, apparently, we both were thinking about it at the same time. I was thinking <laughs> about uh, splitting Olympia and that Olymp- and Pell-Mell was my favorite band in the world. And they'd recently lost their, their uh, second guitar player, Rhyming Guitars, was two guitars, bass, and drums, and now they were a three-piece. And so I said, guys, how about a keyboard player with a bunch of noise? And they were, <laughs> I didn't say that, but but. They, were they knew what they the were getting. <laughs> well, yeah, because they liked my solo work that they'd heard through Sub Pop. Thank you, Bruce Pavitt. And uh, and they knew uh, that I knew what I was doing with synthesizers. And they were big fans of Per Ubu and Ellen Ravenstein, mm-hmm. uh, who was their synthesizer player. So originally in Pell-Mell, I was asked to do kind of autoplay synthesizer noises that were, you know, not really, you know, actively playing a keyboard, more like just turning a, a sound on, turning a sound off, stuff like that. I see. Yeah, not not very engaging, <laughs> you know, to somebody that was used to a, you know, I don't know what, but um, but anyway, yeah, that version of Pell-Mell was fun, but I don't know how many people really got it. Yeah. Okay, so then you go up to Ber- Berkeley. I believe Pell-Mell is playing sporadically, I think just around the West Coast at this time. We were pretty serious about it. We all had day jobs, but we rehearsed once a week, and mm-hmm. we played. We didn't like playing live. We played live at least once, sometimes three times a month. Mm-hmm. And I think we did three uh, West Coast jobs, maybe two. I can't remember exactly. And we went up to Canada a couple of times. Oh, you did? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Vancouver, I mean, if you call that Canada. <laughs> Tough enough. <laughs> yeah, nobody knew who we were, but we had uh, great shows at the, the Railway Club. Oh, yeah. In mm-hmm. Vancouver. Okay, mm-hmm. so, you know, it's still there. It's still there, <laughs> yep. <laughs> who, what kind of bands were you playing with? Like, do you recall some of the shows? Well, there was a wonderful band called X-Tall. That's X hyphen T-A-L. And you can find some of their stuff on YouTube. They were a really wonderful, crazy, kind of lyric-intensive writer punk. That's like, you know, the lyrics were a big deal. And they were they were good guys, and they are friends of mine. And I'm still friends with a bass player, Alan Korn. That's Alan Korn, K-O-R-N, a notable <laughs> attorney in San Francisco. Uh, and... God, who else did we play with? There was a band they produced called Paris Working. I think we played one or two shows mm. with them. We opened for the Wipers when we played Olympia. Oh, yeah. That's kind of a big deal, I mm-hmm. suppose. Mm-hmm. I think we were supposed to open for Romeo Void, but Bill Graham made sure that never happened because Romeo Void gigs made money. <laughs> Violent Femmes. Oh, that would have been a, a good fit. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They were hot back then. That's when the record was on the charts and they were on the way to being signed down in LA, we played the anti-club. So, uh, we got to open for the Minutemen several times. The Minutemen were, you know, it's very funny. I always thought the Minutemen really liked Pell-Mell. And I always thought that was a gigantic compliment. And Mike Watts still recognized me outside of the band when I meet him at other shows. And I didn't know that much about the Minutemen and I didn't realize that, Oh yeah, they like Pell-Mell. But they they liked everybody. They helped everybody. <laughs> they were proper socialists. Yeah, for sure. You know? <laughs> yeah. And they were so good live. Okay? So, yeah, we got we were lucky enough that, you know, that, that San Francisco was iffy as far as, you know, how people saw us or how our gigs went. Whenever we went to L.A., we, we did big gigs at the Anti-Club, mm. like with the Minutemen or... Um, October Faction, right. uh, on the San Francisco band that was also, you know, big down there. So we played sure. them a couple of times. What the fuck was Steve Wynn's band? What was that, the big band Dream back Syndicate. then? Yeah, yeah, we got to play with Dream Syndicate, I think, twice. Hmm. So, oh, and Love Tractor. We got to tour with Love Tractor. Okay. Uh, and, and we were almost, or we were on our way to being on DB, which was the big indie label in Athens. So we, we had connections with uh, people in the Athens scene, although it never really amounted to much. Okay. Uh, but but we, we met up with folks like that. Did we play with the Toiling Midgets? We might have played with the Toiling Midgets. And these are the bands people know about. There are a lot of great <laughs> bands no one ever heard of that we played. Clubfoot Orchestra. We played a gig okay. with Clubfoot Orchestra. Arkansas Man. Hmm. It's a great band everyone's forgotten about, Arkansas Man. We could do this all day. Stop <laughs> me. I, I'm always curious about Obviously, around this time, there's other arty outsider bands, but I feel like bands like Pell Mell often just got stuck in the punk scene out of, you know, lack of options. Yeah, I think part of it back then is there was an ethos to how the music came out, and we were part of the same ethos. Yeah. Yeah. We were almost on Rough Trade, that um, what became Bumper Crop started out as a Rough Trade record. Oh, cool. No, actually, it wasn't cool. Rough Trade America was horribly run. 
and and the guy, the Englishman that ran the label, we won't name him, but he was a jerk. And uh, I doubt if we would have got good treatment on Rough Trade, but the Prestige would have been off the hook, you know. They only had, what did they put out? David Thomas and the Pedestrians and Toiling Midgets and I can't remember what else they did in America, but it's, if they weren't that active, so to be one of the bands on Rough Trade America would have been huge. It was called Sixth International. That okay. was the name of their American label. Okay, so a couple years in Berkeley, Pell-Mell breaks up or fizzles out, however that happened. Bob quit. Bob wanted to go back to college and become a proper graphic designer, which he did. Ah, uh, okay. Bob, Robert Beerman. Right. So the band broke up in 85 because Bob wanted to, to quit doing it. Okay, so somehow you you just go right back to Ellensburg, or is there some stops in between there? Uh, there was a doldrum uh, where I stayed in San Francisco, and you know I had a job, but uh, I didn't really see myself joining any new bands in the Bay Area, and I didn't audition for anybody, and didn't really know anybody that wanted to play with me, and uh, the record producer thing really wasn't a thing. Yeah, you know, I think I worked on four records, you know, the entire time I was in the Bay Area. So there was no reason to stay in the Bay Area. Bay Area, but uh, my best friend from when I was in college in Ellensburg, Sam Albright, I hope is listening, had started a recording studio above his father's business, and uh, they were, I think, three years into their existence, three or four. Years two years into their existence. It was pretty young, but I moved back to Ellensburg primarily because my friend Sam said, come on back here. I have a recording studio. We can make some music, which, you know, in 19, you know, what was I in college? Yeah. In Ellensburg, I was in college in like 75, 76, you know, so you were saying, I have a recording studio. I have an eight track machine, you know, uh, so I moved back to Ellensburg, and the engineer that had helped put the studio together was getting a little antsy, and he moved back to New York, where he was from, and I took over the recording studio hmm. uh, with Sam, and uh, and not too long after that, uh, I ended up recording The Screaming Trees. There's a side story that's been told too many times, like people tell it, like I tell it, but people ask the story. When I was living in Oakland, Mark Pickerel of the Screaming Trees wrote me a fan letter because he had the anonymous record. Ah. So, you see how conveniently the story all <laughs> bundles up together. Right. So, so I, I told myself when I moved to Ellensburg, it's, I have to find this Mark Pickerel guy. And uh, I, I walked up to him cold without him knowing I would moved to Ellensburg or back to Ellensburg or anything like that while he was working at the Screaming Trees video store. Screaming Trees had a video store. All the Screaming Trees worked there. Many people worked there. Yep. And so, yeah, I think the second day I was back, I said, where's Mark Pickerel? And I said, oh, he's over here. And so I went in and, you know, uh, said hi. And we talked forever because the video store was slow. And Lanigan came in. I met Lanigan then. And, uh, I think I met one of the brothers, probably Gary Lee, uh, and found out that we had a mutual appreciation of the shags and all kinds of other stuff. And uh, and so, yeah, back in Ellensburg, you know, got to be pretty good friends with Pickerel and and the Connor brothers and, and even Lanigan to a certain extent. He, he's, uh, okay. 
you know, he's got a public image of being unapproachable and all of that, but he, he was, he was, you know, we, we, we got pretty tight working on this shit. You know, I'm the, you know, I don't think he had a choice. I was the only guy that could run anything there and they were all trying to figure out what they wanted to do. Very intimidating once you realize you're in the middle of nowhere, but everyone's listening to what you do. <laughs> no kidding. You know, well, you say in the middle of the nowhere, and you know, I've heard it said that Ellensburg is quite small. Like, how small are we talking? Obviously, you know, bands would come from the surrounding area to record, record there. It wouldn't have been not a, very many, really, not very many. Hmm. Yeah, Ellensburg. I think when the college was not in session, we had fourteen thousand people or something like that. Oh wow, that's and a, it was a farm town and uh, agriculture and cows and horses and uh cowboy hats and and considering you know it was redneck reagan america people were actually pretty cool in ellensburg i talked about this i was always lucky enough to live in ellensburg when there wasn't a war going on <laughs> I, I think if i would have been there in the middle of one of our you know incursions or something like that i would have seen an uglier version of the city yeah, and uh, they wouldn't have been as welcoming or groovy with some guy from out of town with a funny haircut, you know. But uh, that—that's just an assumption I've made. You know, I don't know if that's true or not. Interesting spot to open a commercial recording studio. Well, this is where my friend Sam wanted to live. His father, uh, Alto Albright, where I'm name checking everyone, is an inventor, and he invented a tool for cutting mats for framing photographs and watercolors and the like. And so Sam ran his father's business, which was putting this stuff together and shipping it out to all the people that sold it all over the world. And the upstairs just became a thing where Sam and his dad and a bunch of local artisans just made this really beautiful studio, overbuilt, beautiful, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, a mitered floor, you know, 14-foot ceilings, you know, all the things people would do for proper acoustic isolation back then. And there was two tons of sand in the wall between the control room and the, the recording studio. They had an ISO room where you could have a drum set right outside the ISO room and record vocals and guitar, in an acoustic guitar right next to it. It was very, very tight. There were beat-happening things that were done like that, you know. Um, so the studio never got used properly. It ran its course and when it closed down in 89 that's when i moved to seattle gotcha okay but before then i mean soundgarden you know i'd done the soundgarden remix there several screaming trees records several beat happening records a record for girl trouble uh chemistry set moral crux you know we had a small label we, we launched the career of moral crux which mm -hmm. i think still exists that's a punk rock band from moses lake yep yeah, so, um, so... And at least so, three yeah. of your own records. Which three? Well, you had, <laughs> I believe there's a couple K Records cassettes prior to the... Cassettes, yes. Yeah. My K cassettes came out of there, yes. I had yeah. one cassette I did in the Bay Area, and then the rest were, you know, done in Ellensburg, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about this record, 448 Deathless Days. Where does that title come from? Does it have a specific meaning yes <laughs> one you can talk about <laughs> yes uh in a factory 
where they're tracking industrial accidents. Ah. They keep a sign on the wall <laughs> saying how long it's been since they had an industrial accident. That's pretty good. 448. Like, like we're <laughs> well, actually, um, on the road heading east, uh, the road that took you out to Vantage, uh, out of Ellensburg, they had a sign that said there were 448 deathless days uh, since there had been a, a traffic fatality. Ah. You know, and in the winter, that was a big deal because two-lane roads, lots of snow and ice. Right. And the joke was is that no one ever changed the sign. The sign was this, you know, falling apart <laughs> wooden behemoth with movable letters. And so the entire time I was in Ellensburg, there was, if you went east, there was a sign that said 448 deathless days. <laughs> okay. So I named it that just as a way so my Ellensburg friends would all understand what that meant and nobody else would know what that would mean. So. <laughs> okay. So we start with the song Invocation. Tell me how a song like a track like this is built. Like, are you, is this all samples? This song? Yeah, yeah. This, um, yeah, that's all samples. Um, that's Dennis Hopper from Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two, ah. and uh, an Up with People record. I sample a lot of Up with People. Okay. And if people don't know who Up with People are, go Google it. Now, how are you capturing samples at this time? What was like the technology? VHS and vinyl. Okay. You know, we can talk about the record, but I made a note here at the top about things you need to know about the record. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and this is technological stuff, so it, it could be pretty dry and, and interesting to people, so you might have to edit this down. But first off, I was a live player, and I purchased most of my equipment in the mid-'70s, so I didn't really have studio gear. Right. So a lot of what I have to work on this record is either primitive small stuff I could afford at the time or things that already lived in the recording studio I was at. Mm -hmm. So one of the things people need to know that it, even though it's a sampler record, it was all done on tape. Right. Now that's what I mean. Like as far as technology went at that time, what did samplers even exist like specifically for sampling? Oh yeah. And if I had real money, I could have had a real sampler, but instead I had, uh, and, Akai S612 sampler. And Akai S612 is now a famous sampler. It gets used in EDM and drum and bass music and has a very wonderful sound and people sample things in there just because of the the color that it gives. And it was a hybrid. It had analog controls on the front, hmm. uh, rotary knobs and all that, and it could record two seconds at a time. And you couldn't you know, parse it out into different parts of the keyboard. It's just one sample across the keyboard. So if you take a two-second sample and slow it down, it becomes a four-second sample or an right. eight-second sample. Right. And you can set the thing on lo-fi and grab a larger byte, uh, but it doesn't have any top. Also, there's an annoying whistling, aliasing tone that's part of its technology. So if you listen to 448 Devilous Days, there are places where the mid-range is really piercing and annoying and only saved because it went to tape. Ah, okay. Tape softened this annoying sound that if you only use one track of the Kaya 612, it would sound fine. But by the time you've got five or me playing a bunch of, you know, 10 fingered chords on multiple channels with the Akai, there's a right, thing that kind right. of builds up. Okay. And you can hear it on some of the bigger, uh, 
complicated parts of 448 fiscal states. So there's the sampler. Um, there's also an important rare gadget that was meant um, as an educational tool, and it's made by the Lexicon Company. It's called the VeraSpeed 2, and that's like variable speed, VeraSpeed 2, and that's Roman numeral. And it was a cassette deck tied to a pitch altering circuit. So the idea would be that you could put a, um, let's say somebody's got a learning disability and they need to hear everything slow. The Lexicon VeraSpeed 2 would allow you to play Allen Ginsberg's Howl at half the speed, but the pitch would be the same. Ah, interesting. But in its early digital ways of struggling to mean the, make the pitch the same, it did very strange artifacts and created sparkly, weird little shit. So when you hear voices mm -hmm. in my cassette music in 448 Deathless Days that sound like a drunken Ronald Reagan talking about statistics, <laughs> you know, that's all Lexicon Bears Feed 2. And while I'm talking about how cool I am, uh, there's never been a plug-in that takes the place of it. And, um, God, I forget the name of the dude that does the Radiohead records, but he uses one all over Radiohead. And then also Chris Walla uh, from Death Cab, uh, the Lexicon Bears Feed, is also part of his rig as well. Okay. And that's it. That doesn't exist outside of that. People didn't take them into recording studios. <laughs> and I got, I got... I got three more for you and then I'll shut up. The console was very limited. It only had one sweepable EQ. The rest were fixed EQ points. So it was a 12-channel console with fixed EQ. Uh, I got to use the Studios TR909, which is now an incredibly hip drum machine. Mm, yep. And they also had an early digital reverb also made by Lexicon called the Lexicon 200. That, and uh, that allows you to take gigantic samples and manipulate them and do strange things. So some of the weird orchestral shit on my cassettes and 448 Deathless Days were done with that. So that's those are the those are the tools that I when I realized that when I listened to was like shit, I couldn't have done any of this stuff without those tools. So really dry stuff. You may want to cut it out. I don't know. But, oh no, people but, love but, hearing about gear. So, <laughs> okay. Well, so, so that that's that's the shit that I either knew how to run really well or was going to learn how to run really well over the course of my time in Ellensburg. Eventually, I got access to more conventional samplers and did a lot of music with that. But that you know was in Seattle, right? Wasn't in Eastern Washington. While we're talking about gear, then what's an Optigan? Don't you want to tell people to go look that up? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing okay. it's worth looking at. Is it? Does it look like Star Trek? No, it's uh looks like a plastic home organ. Oh. <laughs> uh, and it's earth tones and it totally looks and feels like the early seventies and it plays optically recorded discs oh. using the same technology as a sixteen millimeter film projector. Oh. So cool. everything that you play out of an Optagon sounds like an old movie. Ah, I thought it was a, like a s massive ARP six thousand synthesizer looking thing or something no 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 uh then most of them have quit working by now uh they were toys they were made by mattel corporation 
and actually was a boondoggle that didn't work out very well because the <laughs> Opticon didn't last very long. There's a short-lived fake Mellotron called an Orchestron, uh, an even more obscure thing called a Birotron. And they use the same technology, which is a rot- rotating 12-inch disc, same size as a record, but it had uh, light and dark uh, bands, like 35. I don't know how many it's in an Opticon. And in them, in there, there were either recordings of organ notes or recordings of rhythm sections of actual bands. So each Opticon disc would be Polynesian Village or Latin Fever or, you know, Country Bounce with acoustic guitar. <laughs> and and I, I learned later that they were all done in Germany, except for the Champagne music, which actually is the Lawrence Welk band. Uh, and the sessions were, you know, okay, we're in E, record the vamp in E. And so it'd be boom, bum, bum, boom, bum, bum. Okay, record it in E minor. Okay, F, record it in F. So it's all these rhythm sections cut into airtight little loops that go round and round and round and round. Uh, <laughs> and you could turn it upside down and they would play backwards. And if you sped it up, they would speed up. And if you slowed it down, it would slow down. And the keyboard originally was very, very uninteresting to me because it just was organs or marimbas or things that weren't nearly as uh, intriguing as all of these strange, you know, recordings of bands. Uh, years later, I got into the keyboard and I brought my Optagon with me. Uh, I had an Optagon. I believe Lowe have that Optagon now. When I recorded Lowe, I had a few Optagons, so I gave them uh, my Optagon. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you can hear it on a couple of their records, Biggest Life. It's pretty cool. Right on. Okay, so the next track on this album, No Second Chance. That's the single. That's the single. There's a short version and a long version. There's a video for it that you've probably seen it on YouTube. And the video was played on the show on Sunday night on MTV. I forget what they fucking called it. On their alternative show. I can't recall the name of it either. Yeah, but, they, but alternative wasn't a name right. in 1987. Yep. But their Sunday night show, I mean, that's when they were playing Henry Rollins poetry and yep. black flag videos and minimum videos. So my shit got played in that context. Cause at that point I was on SSD record, right? <laughs> which is uh, whatever okay. the whole reason we're talking today. Yeah. And, uh, and, and yeah, that's a, what can I tell you about that? Uh, I was part of the, st- when you've got a studio in Eastern Washington, you do anything for money. Right. So we had a video facility. There was a convention in town, a competition for livestock auctioneers. (laughs) We got hired to, me, Sam, and some friends got hired to go videotape that. And that's how I ended up with a recording of the world champion livestock auctioneer who's all over that track. I love how it's kind of syncopated with the drum machine. It it works to great effect, for sure. Well, that's just, that's just happened by accident. That's sort of the magic of what our ears do. And yeah, that, you know, um, I was getting into Prince, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of, you know, I mean, I was into Prince, you know, in the early eighties, but I was getting really into Prince, you know, mid eighties. And so there, you can hear a lot of that and Jam and Lewis and, uh, and, uh, oh, and that's Earl Nightingale. That's the voice who was like a Paul Harvey. Uh, does anybody know who Paul Harvey is? Uh, he's an American radio commentator, not particularly political, pre-New Age, but always had like some some positive shit. So 
as an older friend of mine described it, you'd be driving across America, you'd turn on the radio and you'd hear Earl Nightingale and it would tell you familiarity. Yes, I'm not in the middle of nowhere. Here's a voice I recognize. So that's where Earl Nightingale is. His famous story is that he learned the secret of life and retired at age 21. And he will tell you the secret now uh, for money or something like that. So you can find (laughs) Earl Nightingale all over the Internet. No one's going to sue me over using Earl Nightingale. (laughs) Okay, the song Ragged Old Flag has Greg Freeman on bass. Now, with something like this, would Greg... Was Greg coming to the studio and playing over top of a recording yeah, track? Uh, yeah, he, he um, played to the rhythm section, I believe, oh. to the to the drum loop. Okay. And so, yeah, so when it kicks into the fast section, he steps on the fuzz box and the fuzz box and does all this proper shit. But Greg, you know, I, you know, we're still good friends. But he came to Ellensburg, I think, twice. Okay. Maybe. Yeah, I'm uh, curious and, about some of the people that play on it. If I wasn't sure if you were taking pre-recorded stuff and mixing it into the music or if they were playing specifically, you know, over a track that you were creating? About 90% of it's uh, played to the track. There are some things where I took somebody out of one song and put them into this song. You know, uh, that's not a sample, that's a relocation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But but no, I mean, anytime you see Greg in the credits on my stuff it's something he played phil hertz plays and going on through this. the record last night i realized how much greg had to do with it you know i mean greg's all over it it's pretty cool yeah phil hertz on drums also i believe played in conch and you've made music with him up in as recently as i think 2019 ish with tiny holes boy man um tiny holes was a reissue from oh, it was. Uh, yeah, that was a live record done in 1982, I think. Oh, wow. And Phil's dead. So it's oh. so great that you name-checking him here. Yeah, we lost him to the McCain cancer a few years ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, man, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was my roommate in college, and uh, we got to make a lot of great music together. And it was a real shame to lose him and 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 all that. Yeah, I tear up a little bit just talking about him. There yeah, you go. That's too bad. Uh, yeah, and he came to Ellensburg, uh, God, I don't know, two times, maybe more. Uh, so we got, we, you know, and he paid good money. I mean, some of the stuff that you heard, you know, on, on these uh, Phil Hertz things that come out are things where he actually, you know, paid for studio time just like everybody else and had the Screaming Trees come in and play on shit. And, oh, wow. And what have you. Yeah, but Phil's a real interesting guy. I, He probably doesn't want to be remembered this way, but he was much more than a drummer. He was really into synthesizers. He was a composer. He was a dancer. He, hmm. When I met him, he just was finishing up his Evergreen degree where he did a bunch of really kind of arty, abstract shit for his degree. And he, he brought a lot of good ideas to the table besides just playing drums. Hmm. Well, that Tiny Holes record is cool. I didn't realize it was a, an older recording. There's a little tiny YouTube mini documentary that this, really cool guy in Olympia did uh, about the origin of the record. And they talked about conch and uh, the tiny holes. And, oh, and wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'll definitely track that down. Uh, the next track then weekend review. We've got Bill Owen on guitar, Greg and Van on bass, Sam Albright, who I was going to ask about. Tell me about the band he was in, which you produced called PS O'Neill, or I guess it was PS O'Neill's band. 
none of these guys had much to do with P.S. O'Neill. Oh, okay. Um, but um, thank you for reminding me who the guitar player was. I was trying to remember that last <laughs> night, so that's Bill. Yeah, Bill from Pell who also came to Ellensburg several times. Hmm. I thought maybe Sam Albright played on that P.S. O'Neill record. Maybe I'm mistaken, God, he probably He made... You you you're you might be up on me. All kinds of people played on that record. Uh and some of those people played on this record. But PS O'Neill, uh otherwise known as Patrick Sean O'Neill, or Sean O'Neill, as many people know him in Seattle, is a musician and also a film director. Do you know about the Fertilichrome Cheerleader Master? Excuse me, what's it called now? I think it's called Fertilichrome uh nineteen seventy six 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 or something, but it's a <laughs> Feature film with me and the Screaming Trees as the bad guys. Oh wow! And and it's a desert Mad Max kind of thing, and it was done with most of the equipment that we use and everything else back then. And uh, yeah, Mark Lanigan is the bad guy. With, you know, he there's like a group of thugs, and Mark Lanigan's the head thug. It's really good. Where can <laughs> I you see can this? Find it online. It's online. It's on YouTube. Oh wow! Yeah. All right, I know what I'm doing as soon as we're done talking. And he uh, yeah. he made this movie? Fertilichrome. Uh, F-E-R-T-I-L-L-A-C-H-R-O-M-E. If you put Fertilichrome into YouTube, it comes popping up. And P.S. O'Neill made this, he directed this movie? He, he wrote and directed the film. Sam was the cinematographer, producer. I played Dr. Stimson. The, the, the outfit I'm wearing on the front of 448 Deathless Days, that's the bad guy. That's my bad guy outfit. <laughs> the jacket, the weird fuzzy mustache, that whole deal. Yeah, that was a persona that uh, we all put together for them. So. You look pretty bad. You look pretty, well, you look like a supervillain on the, on the front cover. Dennis Hopper was a big influence. Obviously, 448 Deathless Days starts off with Dennis Hopper from Texas Chainsaw. You know, so, so yeah, our, there's David Lynch. David Lynch did time in Yakima, you know, which mm-hmm. is, you know, 30 minutes away. It was, it was the heavy, big city, crime-laden uh, eyesore uh, to the east, Yakima, Washington. Yeah, you can find all kinds of Yakima kind of stuff in Blue Velvet. Um, and Kyle, fucking Kyle McLaughlin's from, from Yakima. So oh, this, there you this go. gets to be a small world no kidding. over there. So, so anyway, yeah. Uh, Sean O'Neill's record, Tomorrow's Waiting, was uh, the second thing we put out after uh, the Clairvoyance record. Uh, the next track, Diamond Club, sounds like it's sampled off of vinyl, which you mentioned that you, you took a lot of stuff off of, or was definitely a source. It sounds like a movie soundtrack. That's an old thrift store record. I use that all over 448 Deathless Days, and it's uh, this wonderful orchestrator, David Rose, uh, and it's a record, a tourist record about San Francisco. What about the cool kind of pep talk spiel? That's an Amway rep. Diamond Club is one uh, of the places you end up when you've sold a lot, a lot of Amways. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I've heard of that. Now that you and mention it, <laughs> and 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 that's the guy at the end in Priorities talking about his dad. Ah, same guy. Yeah. yeah. So so. Before we turn on the tape, this might be a good place to point this out, is I don't know how tight the concept actually played out, but the idea is the voices on my cassettes and my and my release here, 448 Delta Stays, my record, there's ministers, 
new age quacks, you know, right wing politicians. These are all people that have an alternate reality they want to sell you. Mm. And there's money, you know, as a, as a gateway to get access to this information. But this was Terrence Music Resource Center time period where people were ascribing right. powers to records that records don't have. This is where people were saying there's backwards masking. Right. And that somehow human beings can hear something backwards and have it flipped around in their head. We don't have that. We'll never have that unless we study that in school, right. being able to reassemble. So in the context of 2021, I just thought I'd mention that is that, that and that's why there's some things I don't want to talk about on this record because some of these people are dangerous. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I don't want to mention who they are. And I'm sure many of them are, are gone now, but it doesn't mean they don't have a loony son, you know, that mm -hmm. it, it, it seems like a fun, frolicky kind of record, but the, there's always this thing where someone's coming on saying, it's like this, get it, listen to it again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next song, Oh Little Seeds, we've got some negative land on this yeah. one, Chris Grigg and Mark Hosler. Hostler. Hostler, sorry. As a Canadian, you think you get that right, okay? <laughs> it's, it's one click off from your biggest, yeah. I, I guess I'm thinking yeah, Hoser. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think Hostler. Yeah. Um, well, I, I contributed music to Negative Land, so this was just a flip. Right. I, I contributed to many Negative Land records, uh, including Escape from Noise. So I sent them a track, and they uh, did some noodly bits. And of course, that's Elizabeth Clear Prophet, who is kind of a dangerous person, but I don't mind talking about her too much now. She's the um, the head of the Church Universal and Triumphant Incorporated. They were uh, a New Age group that. Do you remember the folks that that shut down? Uh, was it Old Faithful because they were tunneling underground? Mm, vaguely. Okay, that's her. Okay. And, and she was an apocalypse person, and uh, and and oddly enough, their their ceremonies are beautiful. They actually almost sound like Sufi chanting or something. Mm. And uh, they're on Negative Land Records, and they're on my records, and they they made the rounds. Oddly enough, because in Columbus Books, South Market, San Francisco, they periodically would sell all the cassettes that uh, no one wanted to buy, and that's where Elizabeth. Clutter Profit profit came from and some of the other people that showed up here is this one gigantic garbage pile of cassettes in this bookstore. Okay. <laughs> Johnny Smoke Swamp Thing has uh, Lee Hochberg playing some, some guitar. Who's Lee? Lee is just a wonderful friend that worked for the, uh, the, the company that Sam ran. He was a musician. He's from Brooklyn. He's his own music doesn't remotely resemble any of this but but yeah he played some of the some of the guitar on that god who else? and lee Sluggo connor from am uh, lee connor yeah uh and that's the drummer from amc uh playing the drum kit oh okay uh he didn't get credited as such then but he was a friend of mine and that's phil hurts playing the slowed down chairs that was phil's idea he says hey i know how to start it <laughs> Uh, give me, and so he just set up four folding chairs and made a percussion set out of it. And we ran the tape at half speed, at double speed, excuse me. And, and that's why it's all slowed down in the strange. So that was uh, not the first time I stole an idea from Phil. 
<laughs> Mark Lanigan plays violin on this. Yeah. <laughs> did he did he play violin? No, but the joke is, uh, do you know the clairvoyance record yep. at all? Yep. You know Strange Out Here? Uh, not off the top of my head, but I, I've heard it. It's, it's a spooky, fuck you, we know we sound like the Doors, but we don't song they did on side two. Okay. And it, oddly enough, it, it pre-shadows Mark's solo material really well in that it's moody and strange and and atmospheric as opposed to roaring and on fire and psychedelic like all the other screaming stuff. And he borrowed a violin from a friend. Hmm. And we plugged it into an amp. And so we did a little bit of Velvet Underground style screeching, but then lots of feedback. Hmm. And the feedback's all in tune. So there's this giant howling, resonating, scanning word all too strange out here that's Mark's violin. And so I asked Mark to bring the, um, the, the violin back. Bring it and back. So that shows up for, <laughs> yeah. This one has one of the samples that I'm really hoping you could tell me about because it was Honestly, it was driving me nuts. What is the song at the end of this that it fades into? I know I've heard it before. What does it go into at the end? I don't think it goes into anything at the end. It kind of has this, uh, almost like, uh, it sounds like elevator music. Oh, with a choral thing and all of that. Yeah. It's like a, like a boy choir thing or something? Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. No, it, it, I'm probably playing something that mimics something that you recognize. But no, that's, that's just... Uh... That's just my sampler and mm. some sampled voices, okay. and uh, and you know there's only so many notes in the scale, so I'm probably playing something you recognize. Okay. There are moments where I do shit like that. I don't know if there's anything like that on this record, uh, but there's some other places where at the end of a song I deliberately jump into something that somebody would go, "What the fuck is that? I know that." <laughs> okay, and then on the CD and cassette version, we have the track "Emerging Nations." Now. I'm assuming Ben Fisk is your brother. That's right. Okay, he gets. He's a... my younger, smarter brother. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a tiny bit of sampling myself and gathering samples. I'm, I'm imagining you like not even being able to enjoy a television show you're watching because you're just thinking samples the whole time. Is that how it was for you? Were you always trying to find these samples, or did they kind of come to you? Well, once again. People don't understand. Back then, your cassette deck wasn't hooked up to a TV. Right. <laughs> wasn't that you know, simple. <laughs> it wasn't that simple, no. So um, there were a few times I was lucky enough to watch a show and have the VHS or the cassette going or something like that. But he, even VHS, VHS, most musicians didn't have VHS players back then. You had to have a day job to have a VHS player. Right, yeah. That track in particular, my brother... Uh, He's had a lot to do with Asia. Uh, he he was startup at Sprint, and then later worked at Stratacom. And when you know Singapore and China and went high tech, my brother uh, moved over there and started working there all the time. Mm. So he would always provide me a stream of interesting media from back then. That's a, I'm mispronouncing her name, Sean King. That's uh, Mao Zedong's wife. Oh. And that's the Gang of Four trial. The Gang of Four 
trial, right. which is a famous part of history that no kids know about at all. <laughs> That's Gene Scott, a famous television minister, saying, "Go out there and take over the world." You know, it's it's a it's a whole thing about the the um, the question mark, which is the growing menace of China. <laughs> it's the emerging nation. Right. So the piece is uh, kind of a surrealistic collage based on um, things that you know one might be afraid of coming out of out of China. And mm, my brother and actually played real now. instruments. <laughs> yes, and look where we are now. Yeah. Uh, so Steve Fisk, I, I should have been president or at least a cultural <laughs> minister, or something like that, or my brother should have. And uh, and that was done on a four track in my apartment in San Francisco, like two of the tracks on this record. I just my brother and I transferred to eight track and fucked it all up. And my brother thinks I ruined it uh, completely, but that's my brother. Uh, I hope he's listening. You'd hear moments go by that went like, shit, I wish I would have had a cassette going in that, or how do I find a copy of this? Right. And my friends in Negative Land, because there were five of them, had more resources <laughs> to get stuff more. And actually, one of the, the first time I met the weatherman from Negative Land, uh, he gave me a long conversation on how I could hook up my TV and the kind of parts I would need to make a proper recording onto a cassette deck. Mm. And for those that know the weatherman, Maybe you don't know the weatherman, but he's famous for long, protracted stories and explanations. Right. And and he does it in a very <laughs> measured, wonderful tone. So the first time I met him, he was that guy from Negative Land. And, he, well, first you'll need a microfarad <laughs> capacitor. I'd recommend, you know, and it was, uh, it was, it was, um, it was a bucket list moment. Oh, you talked to Mark. I we, talked to Mark. We he did. Told me he had a good interview. Yeah, we yeah. did talk to him, and he's he kind of mentioned that people were David's his name, right? The weatherman, David Wilkes. He's right. still with us. Yes. Yeah, he, I remember Mark saying that people were always, you know, taken aback when when they actually met him to find that that's how he really talks. <laughs> oh yeah, it's not yeah, a put on. No, no. And then and then he's a founder. He started negative. Life. Yeah, yeah. He's playing with them now. He's part yeah, of he's their, on their, their new record, yeah. Well, and then he's also doing the live shows. You know, it's Mark and uh, I'm now sorry, forgetting. It's Mark and and, and uh, Dietrich and and, uh, and David doing it. Yeah, yeah. Your brother Ben plays bass on this song too. Is he? Did he play in bands? We played in bands growing up. He's a cellist. Ah, that's probably really boring. But you no, know, we had cellos all throughout every generation uh, of our family's got cello players. Ah, okay. My my uh, great-grandfather in Warsaw was a physician that also ran a string band, you know, and I guess his father's same deal, that was part of their thing in Warsaw, is everybody had a, you know, it was before recorded music, so everyone had a string band. Right. You know, Mama played bass, you know, little sis played the viola, you know, that kind of garbage. You know? Yeah. Okay, the next song, Trash Heap. The sample on this one, that I'm assuming the title comes from, like the terms are non-negotiable. Where's that one from? Is that the Amway? Uh, oh no, that's even better. That's a Yakima voiceover guy, and that was from his uh, demo cassette. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, nothing escapes the trash heap of time, and man, the buyer of things buys its failure. You mm-hmm. talking about that guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And. uh God damn! I will. I I was listening to that track last night, going, 
I remember it being funky. I didn't remember it being that funky. It's really <laughs> funky. It's not me. I'm not playing any of that. That's Albright and Greg Freeman and Phil Hertz. Yeah. Okay. On uh, the next one, further demo of an assist. I think this is the one the one of the only tracks on the on the record that is credited solely to you. And it, it's something we haven't talked a lot about is your synth playing on this on this record. It's not right. just, it's well, not just I thought samples. it would be really boring if I listed everything I played on each song. I thought that that would be narcissistic, but right. that's that's the other joke is that the credits are all about the people that, you know, are playing on it that, you know, that don't involve what I'm doing. So yeah, I I, you know, that's a just an octagon track. That's just uh, an octagon trick. Okay. You, you take the Lawrence Welk disc and you turn it upside down and it sounds like Philip Glass. <laughs> and it's going through that Lexicon 200 reverb I mentioned earlier, which gives it this amazing space. And because it's an octagon, there's no top end, which in digital is very strange. So there's no top end for the digital reverb to exaggerate or, or make sound hissy or annoying. So, um, yeah, further demo of an assist. That's named after another track called Demo of an Assist, and that's one of the tracks we're not going to talk about. Okay. Break on through. That's a Doors ripoff. Those are those. That's a that's a horrible anti-rock music minister reading the lyrics <laughs> for Break on Through by the Doors. <laughs> and that's um the guitar solo is Al Katz, who's a champion guitar solo that plays on guitar. The champion guitarist that plays on lots of records. And that's a solo he did on Sean O'Neill's record that uh, uh, on P.S. O'Neill's record that I pulled off and stuck on there. That's why it's relocated, right? And yeah. David Witcher was actually in a uh, kid metal band that I recorded, and uh, I, uh, you know, I sampled his, <clears throat> and he actually gave me permission to do that, so oh. I credited him. And uh, he's actually fighting for his life right now. He's. Uh, in uh, some kind of chemo thing for, I believe, brain cancer, but oh. he's still with us and writing songs. David Witcher, he's on uh, Instagram and the internet, very talented guitar player. Turned out he's a lifer, literally. He's still doing it. And wow. that's David Witcher, W-H-I-T-C-H-E-R. Okay, we'll and get of course well his soon. Band, yeah, yeah, no, and, and check it out. His band was DWI, David Witcher's Idea. <laughs> Pretty cool for a kid from Yakima. No kidding. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, too much information. But no, I, there's but never too much information. <laughs> you should know that Mark Pickerel, I'm talking over you, I hear what you're saying, but that's Mark Pickerel and Van Connor basically playing Orange Airplane, which was the first song on Clairvoyant. So yeah. if you listen to that song, it's they're basically playing me the, the hit off of Clairvoyance, and right. I'm just laying other things on top of it. Matthew Norrell on drums? Oh, yeah, yeah, he, um, that's the AMC guy, he was on there as well. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, let's see, the next song is Tongues. This this sounds like, it's credited to P.S. O'Neill, tell me if I'm, if my guess is right here, it sounds like maybe one of his songs, Run Backwards, with a shotgun sampled over top of it. No, it's one of his songs without the lyrics. Ah, Okay. And I reconstructed it myself, but it's all based on an Opticon trick that we figured out, and he figured it out before me, so I stole this trick. <laughs> and his version of it is called Jeff Reflected. I think it's on the second Chains of Hell Orchestra cassette, which is online. You can find a YouTube of it someplace. 
Chains of Hell Orchestra. Soul of Spain. Now, here's another thing we haven't really talked about much is how you used tape manipulation. Did Is that something you learned all on your own? Did somebody show you how to do that? Evergreen. That's, I teach you that at Evergreen. First okay. project they had me do was all tape edits and, and what have you. So that's quick. That's a quick answer. But no, I, uh, I didn't have access to a tape machine growing up or not a very flexible tape machine. So yeah, I learned about tape editing in college. Mm-hmm. And, and a little bit before I got to Ellensburg, a uh, little bit before I got to Evergreen, there were some places in LA, some places I worked that showed me how to, how to do editing and what have you. But, uh, you know, to do tape editing, you have to have time, Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and a lot of time in Ellensburg. Okay. Were you influenced at all by like, you know, dub reggae or anything like that? And, you know, I know there was a, a lot giant of... fan. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. No, those, all, all those places on, you know, trash heap and all, where there's a giant bomb on the two and the four and all of that. Yeah, no, that's all be, uh, trying to, you know, figure out dub techniques and all of that. Yeah. You know, I, the early stuff that like, you know, with King Tubby and scientists and, you know, you scratch Perry, there's this, well, perhaps, you know, the trick where you can take the knob that's going to send the snare to the reverb and manually gas it on beat two and beat four. And maybe there's another knob that goes to an echo unit and you know, to gas it on beat four to make something hit and catch and all of that. So there's just a lot of manual manipulation you could do on an analog console that you can do now digitally if you want to, but, but, but the original dub stuff was all doing that, you know, on purpose, you know, with, whatever kind of reverbs they had. You know, people write about that, that you can read about Jamaican reverbs and all of that. That's well documented. Yeah. Scientists have got some great interviews. Tragedy at Sea. I, I'm... Yeah, terrible titles. Sorry about all these titles. They all just sound like a soap <laughs> opera or something. A lot of them are taken off of, like, thrift store records that I sampled. That's Ran. That's a famous Japanese movie. Those are all samples from okay. Ran. When I'm listening and to Sam these... Sam playing guitar. Yeah. When I'm listening to these, I'm I'm just trying to picture how you put them together. Like, are how much trial and error is going on? Or do you just hear it all in your head? Oh, I never hear it all in my head. It's just finding things that inspire me. Yeah. Just like Brian Eno, you know, he talks about how terrible it is to have to go into a recording studio and turn on a rhythm machine and pull an idea out of your ass. You know, he didn't much more eloquently than that, but that's that's a Brian Eno complaining about being Brian Eno uh, quote. <laughs> uh, but 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 yeah, they all start with the rhythm machines, you know, or a, or a, a rhythm loop of some sort. These are pre samples, so there weren't a lot of things based on sampler rhythms or anything like that. But and just to flesh out your question, yeah, you add something, you know, oh that's stupid, and you add something else, and oh that's stupid, and. Maybe a friend scheduled to come to town and go, hey, I got this thing. Well, tell me what you think. And I go, well, I could try something. And then they come up with something better than your idea, but that inspires another direction and you take it out there. But it, no, it's all fun. This is just me getting the chemicals flowing in my brain that I like to have flowing. Yeah. So that's the real inspiration here is to be in the middle of the, the flinging the paint part of the process. Right. Uh, and no, I'm not like Prince. I don't visualize it all in my head and execute it like a sneeze in one grand gesture. <laughs> you know, I'm, not, I'm not talented like that at all. Okay, the next track, This Vacuum. 
this has something to do with the screaming trees, but I'm not sure what. It's a screaming trees outtake oh, that they okay. never finished. Okay. And Steve Peters from customer service played sort of noodly English sounding guitar on top of it. And I was looking for an excuse to try tape flanging. Do you know what tape flanging is? No. Well, you probably know what flanging is, right? It's like a flanger pedal for a guitar, I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah. Yes, a spinning, shifting harmonic thing. Well, the way tape flanging, there's plugins that attempt to mimic this now, but you took a piece of tape, printed it to another piece of tape, and then ran it against it, and then changed the speed subtly. So that was me actually cutting up an 8-track tape, which is pretty brutal of me to do back then. I didn't really have my etiquette together, but that was cutting up a Screaming Trees tape, and I think I was... No, I wasn't. I didn't cut up the Screaming Trees tape. I printed various parts of this one song to an A-track and then made it flange uh, by playing with the speed and the positioning. And you can hear that in the stereo. Like the beginning of it starts out in mono, and when the drums kick in, it goes into stereo, and the bass goes stereo. And I mean, That's proper tape flanging. Okay. And I'm not explaining it very well. Anybody that really knows about tape flanging is probably going, well, what about this? And what about that? And it's not always tape speed. Sometimes it's yada, yada. So, but that's, uh, you know, Ichiku Park, you know, that's proper tape flanging, you know, by the, the small faces. It's a very complicated, very labor intensive thing. It was indicative of how little they had to play with in the old studios that an engineer knew that we could do this. It might have been something from the Gong Show. This might be something that George Martin brought from the Gong Show, which uh, was the comedy show he produced before he was working with the Beatles because they had lots and lots of insane tape effects and sound effects and what have you. Mm -hmm. So it's an excuse to play with tape flanging. And also, I thought it would be really fun to do this for and to the Screaming Trees. And they all dug it. And uh, Mark Lanning and dug it. And then he added, don't do it again. <laughs> yeah that's cool don't do it again yeah. <laughs> well he he has a rep, reputation to uphold you know yeah I yeah. suppose yep. me and Mark, Mark's a nice guy I think um, I, I, I think the book is written from uh, a perspective that is an interesting place to write from, but you know, I, I think there's an aspect of performance art and everything to what he's doing, mm. even at this stage. Um, I think Mark's a very talented, very smart, loving person, and uh, you know, and I'm so glad he's still on the planet and still making wonderful music. Yeah. Okay, the next track, Shakiri Bushi. Am I saying that right? Shakiri Bushi. I don't think either of us are saying it correctly. It's, um, do you know the Bunnies, uh, Japanese Ventures band? No. Uh, you can find them online, the Bunnies, spelled just like how you spell it. And if you want to hear me mispronounce something, I could try to mispronounce the name of the guitar player who's famous in Japan and has done a million things besides the Bunnies. Mm -hmm. But Ray Farrell turned Pell-Mell onto the Bunnies, and we listen to them all the time in the band on the tours and, okay. and what have you. And that's a traditional harvest song. Uh, and I basically transcribed the bunnies version into a MIDI atrocity 
and the guitar part, so I couldn't play on keyboard. Sam Albright played, but mm. uh, a lot of it's me playing, you know, inky sitar samples and things like that. Okay. And uh, I'm very proud of that, and it was a complete pain in the ass to do. It's a really cool song, it, and one of the only ones, I think, well, not the only ones, but one of the ones that's mainly built around your keyboard playing, I would say, relying less on sampling. Yeah. Can I tell you about a new record? Please do. Okay. I have made friends with a guitar player that has a lot of history in Seattle, but he's from upstate New York, and his name is Dennis Ray, R-E-A. Mm -hmm. And he has a record slated for 121-2021, first day of the Biden administration, and it's called Giant Steps with two Ps. Okay. Because it's a Russian record. Oh. It's music influenced by folk cultures of central Russia. And there are two kind of Muzaki instrumental tracks on the record that uh, sound right next door to Chikiri Bushi. It's funny. Dennis had never heard Chikiri Bushi, but he asked me to play on these two interpretations of this um, um, strange... Uh, northern Chinese uh, cassette by this, I believe, Chinese uh, uh, musician named Jean-Pei Seren. I, I played on a couple of these tracks, and I totally brought all the same energy as Kiri Bushy with a weird sense and oh, all cool. this other shit. But anyway, it's on Moon June Records. It comes out on the 21st. Dennis Ray, Giant Steps. We'll uh, keep our eyes peeled for that. Okay, the next track, She Walks. We've got this Tell Me Daddy sample again. Uh, I'll put people. Oh, okay. Yep. Tell me, Daddy, what color is God's skin? That's a famous I'll put people song called God's Skin, an unpronounceable name. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to be about universal brotherhood and like most well-intended right-wing conservative stuff. It ends up being very far from the target. But uh, but yeah, that and then uh, she walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climbs and starry skies and all this bright, all this bright darkness and light is in the aspect of her eyes when shade no more when shade the less would happen anyway it's a famous piece i believe by lord byron that my uh, old buddy richard dinner who is now a buddhist lama whose name is Jampa dorgay i know i guess we're talking about Jampa Saren, but uh richard is my ellensburg buddy from way back a, a mentor and a senior of mine he's an old berkeley street poet richard dinner also googleable mm -hmm. uh, and uh, still, still with us, and still writing poetry and and publishing his stuff as well. As a matter of fact, that piece I told you that just got uh, published by the Chapel has got a Richard Denner uh, reading in it. Okay. So, and Denner Denner was on 999 levels of do. He shows up periodically, and he plays the old man in the movie. Ah. <laughs> Telling you that so you can actually <laughs> go see Richard Denner in real life if you watch this silly movie, The Fertilicone. Okay, so the next track, Beretta. This is another yes, one. One fake soundtrack, Optagon, done in Bill Hurt's apartment in San Francisco on his four track with me and my little brother playing bass. And mm -hmm. uh, just was a shtick piece, just trying to sound 60s. It's worth noting that's the beaded uh, noise, that giant keyboard that comes in every once in a while. Remember Beat It by Michael Jackson? Yep. Remember yep. how it had a giant gong at the beginning? This, oh, this early 
you know. Right. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah. yeah, I had a synthesizer that would make that sound, and so I had to find one place to put in the beat it sound. So that's a Beretta. And does that have something to do with the TV show Beretta? No, nah, just looking for a corny name. You can see ah, names okay. are kind of when you're doing an instrumental record, names are kind of tough. Tell Mel work harder on names than I've heard. <laughs> to abide in the flesh. The Soul of Stain, that's an outtake from from that. That's just a different version of that. That's just that same thing mixed differently. Okay. <laughs> There's not much to say about that. That's just me noodling around. I believe I played everything. There's one more track on out of that that ended up on uh, on the One More Valley cassette. And I uh, forget what I ended up calling that one. But that was my friend uh rich jensen on it i always i mix i lose track of these things i was trying to tell rich oh no you're on my record and he was looking all through my record and, no i'm not steve and oh shit that's right that's on the cassette that came after the record uh, but you know at this point you know this is just an arc you know we're talking about all these things but i'm putting these things together in this order regardless of how stupid the names are just to create a shape and a series of ups and downs and dynamics and changes and Things you do when you sequence a record, you know. There are things that didn't make the record, but I did use an awful lot of this. And also, as we draw to the end here, part of the point of this was to make something that was 71 minutes long. Right. Because this is the beginning of the CDs, and you didn't have the limitation of length anymore. And if you took it out to 72, there was a chance you would have rejects. But so uh, you kept yeah, it in yeah. 71... This is all strong knowledge from the SST people, you know. It says, oh, I, I'm making a record for SST. How long should I make it? Richie at SST gave me the, the lowdown about making CDs, what okay. you count on and what you couldn't count on. The final track, Priorities, we you kind of mentioned earlier. That's uh... Yeah, that might be the best thing I ever did. I ended up with some production music from the Big Valley, and I've used that a few different places. This is the end of the uh, of a Big Valley episode, so this is just uh, this closing music that uh, when you put it through the lexicon bare speed two and slow it way down, it gets kind of gothic. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the Amway salesman talking about the things that stand in the way of us getting to the Diamond Club, and maybe it's and maybe it starts way back in your childhood. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to know for a, for a record with as many kind of abstract things on it as 448 deathless days so many people have come back to me about priorities as like what you know you know good lord what is this <laughs> what is going on in there <laughs> how did i think of that i didn't think of that i put that together other people did it it's just a very great collage yeah it's a really I cool record myself. yeah well thank you yeah what else are you doing now steve well I have an album's worth of material with my good friend Skin, who's a Native American rapper, and uh, we have a band called The Grumps. Mm. I've heard and, of this, I think. Yeah, there there's a single that uh, actually getting played on KXP, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a weird video I posted on my page, so... Uh, the Grumps is probably uh, the closest thing to a solo thing I've done in a while. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I've got those pieces that the chapel just posted. I'm continuing to work with Carrie Ackery from Hammerbox. Mm-hmm. And she is a younger friend of mine, but she moved to Tacoma a little ahead of mine. A little ahead of mine. And uh, we did a record called Passage 
uh, was the first thing I did in Tacoma, and that came out a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's a joke. It came out last year. Okay. Uh, and it disappeared promptly because that's our world. It's a beautiful record. She wrote it about uh, the, her, her mother who died recently, and I'd recommend Passage to anybody that wants to hear something normal or evocative and traditional that I've done, but it's, uh, you know, almost all live musicians recorded here in Tacoma. Here in Tacoma, we have this amazing recording studio that has a vintage console built for Motown in 1968, HAL wrecking crew planes, drums, and percussion instruments, which means the sleigh bells are on every fucking Phil Spector song, every Beach Boys Christmas special, all this, the bass, uh, anyway, basses, guitars, keyboards, recording tools, but you can't pick something up without going, oh, yeah, that was um, Cherokee People. Oh, that was on this record. That was on the phone. So it's this amazing small studio. Right now they're recording to digital, but I think the plan is they're going to get their, their – they have an eight-track, kind of what the Beatles were using mm-hmm. for their eight-track. So they're, they're, that's a wonderful studio here in Tacoma. I look forward to doing more stuff there as things uh, open up. I can talk forever about what I'm working on because I'm working on 15 things at once, which is kind of <laughs> what I do. I, it's strange. I get people, well, do you, are you still, I want you to work on my record. Uh, are you still? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm as busier than I've ever been, but the internet doesn't tell you that. So unless mm-hmm. I was out there on Instagram, which I detest Instagram or Twitter, which up until recently I didn't want to have anything to do with because mm-hmm. the president was there. So I just live on MySpace with all the grandmas and grandpas and recipes <laughs> and what have you. So I'll tell people what I'm working on, but people don't necessarily know what I'm working on. Mm-hmm. Maybe some people know about Teens of Denial, Car Seat Headrest. That was the biggest record I ever did, bigger than any 90s records I ever worked on. Uh, if you scale it around what the music industry has turned right. into. You know, that yep. was in 2015, was on all the 10 best lists in 2000. 16, uh, Naked Giants, another great band from Seattle, also affiliated with the Car Seat People. I did a great record for them. Right now, I'm finishing a soundtrack for a documentary uh, about Mansonar, which is a Japanese concentration camp mm. from World War II that has a lot of other complicated parts of American history tied into it, Native American atrocities and water rights in California. And Lori Goldston, the cellist, Mm-hmm. Uh, she's composing the music with uh, help from me and Matt Chamberlain, who's kind of a famous studio drummer and some other very talented people. Yeah, and then a bunch of other solo records and band records. I'm mixing a lot. You know, okay. under quarantine, you know, I, I don't get to work in studios very much, so uh, people send me records to mix on. So I, I mix I mix a lot of shit here. Those people send me records to mix. They don't mix on. That's right. that's not it. People send me records to mix. People contact me. That's so why I'm there in a small room in Tacoma, Washington, with all the same gear I had in Seattle, and I'm kind, kind of um, still struggling to have a little time to enjoy my life, you know, because I'm, I'm pretty busy. Yeah. Well, then I'll let you get back to your mixing, Steve. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, though. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, well, thank you. I was uh, initially very confused by what you're doing. <laughs> and so many people that don't have history and don't have context. I would like to say, and I hope there's room to include this, SST was a, a, an amazing effort from so many people. So many great people worked at SST and made it like 
their thing and worked mm-hmm. very hard to make that whole label happen. And so when we think of SST now, we think about the lonely old man in Texas and all of those problems. And, and uh, yeah. it was much, much bigger than that. And I'm sorry to see that aspect of it forgotten because it was a beautiful, beautiful thing when it was going on. And it was a place where people met people way outside their circles and grew and learned. And they were a proper Bauhaus. You know, they had everything under one roof, you know, the label, the booking agency, the photographer, the graphics layout, like the residents, like a lot of other great things you could point out in the 80s. And uh, I want to say thank you to all those people. And I want to say fuck you to the lonely old man in Texas. Fair. Okay. (laughs) Totally fair. Yeah. And especially fuck you for dishonoring and not appreciating the greatness of what you created with all these other people. Yeah. Take care. Thank you so much. All right. Like I said, awesome interview. I feel super lucky that we get to have Steve on this week. Like I said, especially back to back with Pell it's really tying these two stories together. Love that. Um, also interesting uh, for me, in addition to his, his last spiel there at the end, as I said about, you know, the importance of SST, the reason why we do this show, right? Um, I thought it was interesting to hear his comments about Lanigan too, like uh, adding uh, adding a bit of a different perspective there about Lanigan, especially after that book came out. And then he mentioned the Optagon. And when he mentioned that, I was like, oh, dude, because um, there's this band that I, I pseudo follow called Optagonally Yours. It's a, it's a band with Rob Crow from uh, Pinback and a, and a bunch of other San Diego bands. Rob Crow and P. Hicks, they have this band, Optagonally Yours, and um, the last album, Optagonally Yours in Hi-Fi, came out on Joyful Noise. Those are weird records made with the Optagon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, number one, there's no way we would have been able to do this album justice without having Steve on the show. There's just so much going on here and so many musicians that we wouldn't be able to put, put the whole thing together. But that is one of the cool things about this record for me is it to me just captures that era, that Olympia, Washington, evergreen era. I know that's a little bit earlier, but like what a cool scene with that radio station KAOS and the op magazine and and then all these dudes you know steves and sam albright are just rocking this amazing studio in ellensburg creating all this amazing music that movie that they talk about about fertilichrome like if you do nothing else at the end of this episode go watch fertilichrome (laughs) It, it is just fantastic uh, Steve is the evil Dr. Andrew K. Stimson uh, with his goons Lewis, Jimmy, and Bong, which are Mark Pickerel, Lanigan, and Van Connor as Bong. Mark dies in like this wonderfully gory scene. Uh, Steve does the soundtrack for that as well, Ryan, and it's really great. Like it's it's perfect. The theme song of the movie is this totally killer Stooges rocker called 197666 
by this Denver band called Zozobra, not to be confused with the metal band that came later with that name. Steve produced it, though. They just put out, like, one or two singles, but I need to find that song. It's just so killer. <laughs> Zozobra. So not yeah. not the Zozobra you're thinking of, the other Zozobra. That's right. Okay, yeah. got it. Made And the movie was made by Sam Albright and P.S. O'Neill. Again, so cool that they kind of had this really creative little group of friends that were doing all this amazing stuff. And like the gear rundown of that studio, man. Oh, yeah. So I'm glad you encouraged them to give us the gear spiel. A lot of the sounds and that gear and, and some of the tracks, too, we'll, we'll talk about in a minute, really reminded me. And I again, I'm by no means an expert on any of this stuff, but really reminded me of some hip hop sounds of the day, right? Because they're using the same gear. Yeah. Uh, another good thing to watch, Ryan, is that Tiny Holes mini doc that he mentions. It's up on the K Records YouTube channel. It's really g- great, as is that reissue, which obviously if you hear the interview, I didn't know it was a, it was a reissue. Um, mm-hmm. I'm new to that one, Tiny Holes, but it's really good. Um, some of the other stuff he mentions, I'm always writing stuff down when we talk to these people and stuff. Arkansas Man. Have you ever heard of that band before? No. He mentions them as a band that I think, I think he says Pell-Mell played with them. And it's Arkansas with a, with a W on the end. They're really cool. Uh, post-punk, I can't, I should have wrote this down. I can't remember where they were from, but they have, I think a 12-inch EP and a 7-inch. They're really cool. Uh, some other stuff that I just have to check out is X-Tall. And then he, he mentions Love Tractor, who Bob might have mentioned last week as well, as kind of like similar to Pell-Mell, but I'm not super familiar with Love Tractor, so I need to check them out too. Uh, another Speaking of Pell-Mell, they were possibly going to be on DB Records, the great Athens, Georgia label. Who knows what would have happened differently for Pell-Mell if that would have happened, you know? Maybe they would have started touring and then wouldn't have split up or whatever. But Ryan, can you guess what my favorite part of the interview was? I th- I thought it was the movie, but it wasn't. What is it? Rockin' with Dawkin', man. Oh. <laughs> Steve Fisk was in a band with George Lynch. Yeah, yeah, of course. Holy of course. shit, man. The only thing I need to hear more than, you know, some, like Steve Fisk playing with George Lynch is like the band Conch. Yeah doesn't sound like either of those i'm gonna get to hear either of them though yeah all right should we get into this record yeah man history lesson part two all right ryan this came out in 1987 on lp cd and cassette the cd and cassette have seven extra tracks it was recorded at velventone in ellensburg washington assembled during the evenings and weekends of 1986 and 1987 Uh, The CD is broken up into part one and part two. So here's track one, side one of the LP, Invocation. Uh, For me, really interesting when you know where some of these samples came from, like after listening to the interview and then listening to the record. Yeah, ready or not. Uh, Yeah. You can kind of hear, you know, how we put these songs together and, you know, manipulated the samples. Uh, I believe he says the backing track on this is from Up With People, which is this weird traveling non-profit organization where they perform these kind of sugary pop songs and do volunteer work. Oh yeah, that's the part that sounds like 
just totally cheesy 80s inspirational music. <laughs> yeah. They've released a number of albums, uh, many recorded on the tours that they do, starting in the mid-60s. And then it's been a long, long time since I've seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, but I'm assuming the screaming is taken from that movie and also the guy praying, which I'm assuming is Dennis Hopper. Okay, track two, No Second Chance. Uh, as Steve mentions in the interview, there's a video for this song. It's Steve walking around wearing the jacket that he's wearing on the front cover, uh, making a call on a payphone, etc. And it's kind of interspersed with uh, flashes of all manner of weird images. Uh, this one has Steve Peters on guitar, Steve Fisk on synth. Uh, he, he would have programmed the drums as well. Earl Nightingale, he mentions, is the guy doing the Everybody is Born Ignorant. Anyone who remains ignorant has only himself to blame. That's right. Uh, he also mentions being a Prince fan, which definitely comes through um, if you've ever heard his Pigeonhead project. And you can hear it here too. Uh, the auctioneer, I believe he says, is actually the world champ livestock auctioneer that he and his Ellensburg friends recorded to make some extra cash, which is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> the auctioneer voice when it comes in. It kind of keeps the rhythm, too. Yeah, for sure. Track three, Ragged Old Flag. Both Greg Freeman and Van Connor get a bass credit here. Phil Hertz on drums. Uh, they sound largely programmed to me, uh, but maybe there's some percussion mixed in. It's made, This song's mainly built around rhythm. Yeah, this sounds like hip-hop in the 80s to me, kind of. Track four, Weekend Review, Greg and Van again on bass, Pell-Mell bandmate Bill Owen on guitar, on guitar, and you can totally tell. For sure. Yeah, picked yeah. it up right away. Great intro vibe on the guitar. Yeah. Uh, Sam Albright, owner of Velvetone on percussion. Sounds like maybe a tambourine. Uh, this is a really great song. Bill's playing is awesome. Steve's ambient synths over top give it a really cool effect. And then another one I really liked, Diamond Club. The backing track is from a thrift store record about tourism in San Francisco, I think is what Steve says. And we have the Amway rep giving a motivational speech to, I assume, a convention of Amway reps trying, and he's trying to tell them how to get into the Diamond Club. You're the best. Yeah. Track six, another really great one, Oh Little Seeds. We've got the Negative Land members Chris Grigg and Mark Hosler, not Hosler, as I keep calling him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> story, Mark. Contributing some guitar and synth here. Uh, we've got the auctioneer again. He, he, Steve mentions Elizabeth Clare Prophet of this New Age religious organization, Church Universal and Triumph, Triumphant. Uh, I assume who's doing this Oh Little Seeds line yeah. that the title comes from. It sounds like there's some auctioneering on this track too at the end too, or it seems, I don't know. Track seven, and the last one, I believe, on side A of the LP, Johnny Smoke's Swamp Thing. We've heard this song previously on the No Age comp. Yep. Matthew Norell on drums, Gary Lee Connor on guitar, Lee Hawkberg on guitar, Sam Albright guitar, this is the one I was sure I'd heard this loungy part somewhere else before, but I'm maybe just remembering it from the No Age comp. It's a really familiar melody. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're not alone. Uh, I, it's like, I know it from somewhere. I've heard it somewhere, 
but it could be like, you know, after school programming TV theme music for all I know. Yeah. Uh, we also have Lanigan on violin on this one and Phil Hertz on percussion. And then on the CD cassette, we have three extra tracks in this part. Emerging Nation, I believe Steve says this was one that was done on a four track with his brother Ben. Uh, some guitar from Bill Owen. A song, as Steve says, about the growing menace of China. Some audio from the Gang of Four trial, who were four Chinese Communist Party officials who were accused of anti-party activities. That's a great one, Emerging Nation. Trash Heap. Greg Freeman on bass, Phil Hertz on drums, although they sound programmed. Uh, Sam Albright on guitar with this looping lick that's really great. Greg Freeman on sitar. Steve refers to this song as really funky, which it does kind of get pretty funky in the second half. I think he says it's a voiceover demo at the end, like the spiel about the terms are non-negotiable. The trash heap of time. Yep. And then... The third of the CD cassette only tracks in this part of the record anyways. Further demo of an assist. The original demo of an, of an assist is on his previous cassette till the night closes in. He calls this a trick with the Optigan, a Lawrence Welk track flipped upside down. Optigan, right? Yeah. There, I read the review in All Music where this one gets singled out for, uh, as he says in the review, almost inadvertently inventing shoegaze thanks to its haunting, vast wash of treated keyboards. And then we're on to part two, if you're on the CD, or side two, if you're on the LP. And we've got the excellent track, Break On Through. Mike Souza and Van on bass, Sam Albright on guitar, Al Katz just shredding on relocated solo, David Wichter, uh, relocated smash chord, and Matthew Norell on drums. This is the anti-rock minister reciting the lyrics to the doors break on through, and it uses the Screaming Trees track Orange Aeroplane, which is the killer opening track off of Clairvoyance. Yeah, I thought this was just a great idea for a song, like a oh, great yeah. a great way to pull this <laughs> off. I love I love the idea. The concept is fantastic it's right right when i'm getting to this part of the disc too especially after listening to the interview with steve i was trying to think you know this is such a unique album which which record is it closest to that we've had on the show probably negative land and this song is this is the one that really made me think of negative land this track this whole thing made me think of negative land not just you know because there's a lot of samples, but because of just the number of collaborators and just the number of things going on on this record. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, then we've got the song Tongues. This is the one that P.S. O'Neill gets a writing credit on. I think that Steve says uh, this is a track by P.S. O'Neill's band Chains of Hell Orchestra. And it's called Jeff or Jeff Reflected. Looks like it was on a self-released cassette called Doctor's Daughter in 1982 by the group Chains of Hell Orchestra. Uh, P.S. O'Neill has an album with, you know, all of these people on it, uh, on Velvetone from 1987, produced and engineered by Steve, of course. 
uh, and also secret agent Conrad Uno recorded some of the tracks. Nice. Okay, the third track of side two, Soul of Spain. Greg Freeman plays some awesome dub-style bass. Mark Pickerel of the Trees on drums. This is an awesome track. It's just a stone groove with Steve laying down some amazing atmosphere over top. The next track, Tragedy at Sea. Some samples taken from uh, the 1985 Japanese epic war drama, Ran. Sam Albright on guitar playing some jagged Keith Levine riffs over this cool kind of drone. Really cool track. The next one, This Vacuum, credited to the Screaming Trees, Steve Fisk and Steve Peters. Mark Pickerel on drums, Steve Peters and Sam Albright on guitars. Mark Lanigan on disembodied voice. This is a Trees outtake, I believe he says. Uh, another great part in the interview where he says Lanigan said, that's cool, don't do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, track six, Shakiri Bushi, Sam Albright on guitar, inspired by the version by the band The Bunnies, who Steve describes as the Japanese Ventures, who were active from 1966 through 71, who I believe he says Ray Farrell introduced them to. Uh, this track is quite impressive. Yeah, it definitely has some very cool Eastern sounds to it that uh, are, are very, like... It's amazing, this many tracks, this many layers, this dense, this late in the album, you've still got some new and interesting uh, sounds from kind of out of left field hitting you. It's cool. Yeah. That's the end of the LP. Uh, the CD and cassette have four more tracks. She Walks. Uh, that's This is the one with Berkeley poet Richard Denner, a friend of Steve's, reciting a poem. I think Steve says by Lord Byron, or maybe he said inspired by him, I'm not sure, uh, over top with some heavily manipulated up with people backing. Tell me, Daddy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, track 18 on the CD, Beretta, another one with his brother Ben, again on bass. Maybe a four-track recording, I'm not sure. Uh, this is the one where he says he uses the beat it gong, yep. though, which you can totally hear. For sure. Yeah. Track 19, To Abide in the Flesh, I believe Steve says, is an outtake of the earlier track, Souls of Spain. Uh, it's short. It's a short one. It's only a minute long. I think it's like the same drum machine sound. It's the only real similarity I could hear between the two tracks. And then we get to the final track, the five-minute priorities. Steve says in the interview that this might be the best thing I ever did and that he still gets asked about it, and I can see why. Uh, it's... I think he says an Amway salesman, again, sampled and slowed down with the Vera speed, and he sounds super creepy, laid out over top of production music from 60s TV western The Big Valley. Very striking song to end the record. Right. This is the one where it's the rug is more important to me, the table is more important to me, because that's my hero, that's my daddy. Yeah. <laughs> really, really cool song. Yeah, and creepy. <laughs> yeah. Again, Ryan, I am just so happy and grateful that we had Steve to explain these tracks to us. There's just no way we would have known just about any of the sources uh, or who many of these musicians are uh, without without Steve. Yeah, it wouldn't have been nearly as fun to listen to us guess for an hour. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't you just picture him and his like that group of friends in that amazing studio just having a blast putting this together? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Here's uh, some more from the All Music Review by Ned Raggett. An intriguing hybrid not like anything else on SST's roster at the time. It has more in common with sample cut-up artists like Adrian Sherwood and World Domination Enterprises. As a trippy listen owing as much to psychedelia, funk, and late-night jazz as it does to experimental procedures, though, it's still great fun. The sheer playfulness of the album is one of its strongest points. Fisk piles on the sonic combinations throughout. Cheap and cheery key- keyboards up against distorted vocals and Carl Stalling-inspired freakouts. You gonna hit me with some Spaceman? Yeah, you want it? You know I do. I always want Spaceman. You got it. So, on the back of the No Age comp, SST-102, of course, uh, Michael Whitaker had a spiel for each of the artists, and for Steve Fisk, he said the following. In the lush forests of America's great Northwest, the trends and fads of contemporary metropolitan lifestyles go largely unnoticed. Instead, the creative spark that manifests itself as a musical impulse draws its inspiration from the person it resides in. If the person in this case is Steve Fisk, the inspiration is sure to be a delightfully whacked out type of madness. Steve is a producer as well as a player and as a result brings a fully realized sound to his compositions. He makes use of a wide variety of found sounds as well as pieces from his favorite at the time songs. Previous recordings have found Steve dabbling in various themes including industrial, Euro disco, ambient musics and many other types of electronically based styles of music. And then also from the SST catalog for this release in particular, it says from the wilds of the great Northwest straight into your unprotected sensory circuits, Steve Fisk comes barreling in on top of every song you've ever heard in your life. A great roaring mass of collage and other auditory surprises. This record is as cool as they come. Sure is. I love this record, man. And all of the all of the stuff. Like that K Records comp of his the stuff that came before this is just awesome. Yeah. I've got that Life is Elsewhere comp on Mr. Brown Records and Tapes with the Beakers and Steve's tracks and also this guy John Foster. Yeah. It's a cool comp. Fisk uh produced it too, nineteen eighty. Yeah. The guy is busy. Yeah, man. <laughs> Ryan, can you pronounce the name of the the lady that did the photo shoot for the cover for me? <laughs> I'll I'll try my best. Uh, let me see here. Diane Zukovathi. Okay. How's that? She that's pretty good. She also did the cover for the Screaming Trees, even if and especially when. So I have a theory actually. Uh, I've seen outtakes of that photo session. I think we maybe even posted them on our Instagram. And, you know, the one where they're on that sheet of frozen ice or whatever. The ice, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Steve Fisk is in those outtakes. So he was at the photo session and he's wearing this jacket in those outtakes. Ah, 
Maybe this. So is... I'm wondering if it wasn't taken the same day. Maybe. And also, there's a scene in Fertilichrome shot in that, you know, in that area. And he's wearing the jacket then, too, except it's summer. <laughs> well, he looks pretty styling on the cover of this record, yeah. for sure. Dr. Andrew K. Stimson, man. Yeah, man. Yep. He's an awesome villain in that Fertilichrome movie. Designed by John Beauchard. Uh, the record was mastered by John Golden. Some thank yous on the inside. Greg Ginn. Thermidor Records. Interesting yeah. thank you. Yeah. K Cassettes. ARPH Cassettes. That's the label that put out uh, his two earlier releases on cassette. Dave Spaulding. Bob Bierman. Rich Ford of SST Records. Some tape donations. Graham Engels. Ben Fisk. New Word World Video gets a thank you. That's the Connor family's uh, video store. Yeah, what about Jim Osborne? What if he's related to Buzz? Maybe he is. That would have been a great resource for this recording, though, New World Video. Of course. Hey, speaking yeah. of K Records, have you seen that documentary? This the the K, what is it? The K in the Shield, I think it is. No. It's a it's a documentary on K Records and Calvin Johnson. It's free on YouTube and there's uh oh. there's some uh lots of mentions of stuff that uh is alluded to in the interview by Steve, as well as um, also a ton of stuff, funnily enough, um, uh, referenced in that About a Son documentary. Check out that mm. K Records documentary on YouTube. I most certainly will. The back cover's pretty bare bones. Yeah, it just looks like some textured, I don't know, construction paper, maybe. I don't know. It's cool because it just highlights that photo on the front cover. Oh, yeah. I think that's that's the intent, man. Yeah. Styling. Yep. Are we ready for the ballot result? Ballot result. Okay, I could have picked just about any song off this record. Really? This might be this might be my longest list of of favorite tracks yet. Weekend Review, Diamond Club, Oh Little Seeds, Johnny Smoke Swamp Thing, Emerging Nation, Break On Through. Soul of Spain, This Vacuum, Shakiri Bushi, and Priorities were my standout tracks. Wow. Weekend Review would be my fave of that list, for sure. Yeah, I could pick any one of them. Soul of Spain was a real standout for me with that dub bass. You pick. And don't forget, you had me pick last week, so you can pick all the rest. So this... <laughs> I kind of feel like maybe we should put on Priorities, since Steve says it's one of the best things he's ever done. Ah, cool. That'd be okay. Let's do that. That's right. Because that's my hero. Right. <laughs> Woo. Awesome. Thanks, Steve, again, for being on the show. Yeah. Great one. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brent, we're going back to one of our faves. It's SST 160, the live Bad Brains album. Uh, it's a cool record. And uh, we've got a special guest. Yeah, Daryl Jennifer is going to be on the show. Right on. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. 
If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.